Let's see if he's on the line. Are you there, Mr. Bonacore? I am indeed. Hi, Mike. How you doing? I'm fine. How are you? Pretty good. I'm going to turn you up here on my end so I can hear you better in my headset. All right. Okay. There you go. And uh, we've never talked before, have we? We have not, no. I understand that uh, you have uh, kind of crossed swords with a buddy of mine named Frank Jerry a while back. Oh, uh, I did? Yeah, I, I don't know if it was through email exchanges or uh, or how it works. He, he runs a, um, a website, I think it's Defenders of Catholic Truth or something. Wait a second. Uh, was this time? a couple, three weeks ago? Uh, I don't know. It might have been a while back. Because there was one individual that I met or had him on the air about three weeks ago. Let me get a week off there either way. I forgot his name. He was one of the rudest, inane Catholics I'd ever encountered. And even some Catholics called up and said the same thing. So this okay. guy, this guy was, I don't think he's probably not your friend then. I don't think so. Frank's, uh, uh, Frank's pretty, usually a pretty nice guy. Okay, then. Unless, unless, you, unless he gets his back up. But, uh, no. I, I doubt he would be rude to you. Okay. Trust me, then. Just, just that means <laughs> it wasn't this other guy. Okay. Okay. I'm, when the Catholics call up and say, that guy was horrible, then you, it's not your friend, Jerry. And I meet a lot of people, and I have a bad uh, memory oh, for sure. names. Oh, sure. So. No, I understand. All right. Now, uh, can you just give us all a little bit of information about your background and stuff? Uh, sure. Um, basically, um, full name is Mark Bonacore. I'm a Catholic apologist. I'm uh, currently involved with a Catholic um, lay apologetics uh, ministry, uh, which is actually uh, based in both the United States and Canada, called the Catholic Legate. We're in all, uh, our our uh, website is www.catholiclegate.com. Uh, I'm sorry, it's catholic-legate.com. Uh, basically, uh, a lifelong student of Scripture, uh, Church history, and the Fathers. Mm-hmm. Uh, my background was my my own dad was a Catholic theologian. Uh, I give um, uh, talks. I, I do I do a lot of uh, consulting work for for different mainstream Catholic uh, apologists and uh, and authors. Uh, I probably shouldn't name them. <laughs> you can if you want. That's and that's, that's kind of my background. All right. Anything else you need to know? Um, how much money? No, I forget that. Uh, <laughs> let me give you a bit about my background here a little bit. I was uh, raised in what I call the HSD denomination. As a younger child, that's the Heathen Slime Dog Church. <laughs> and I was a, a full-fledged member, just diving uh-huh. and swimming around in, in uh, that kind of a thing. I got yanked out of it by the grace of God. And I was forced and tricked into being saved, yeah. And uh, then I... Uh, well, I has a slid a little bit, you know. We kind of do that uh, sometimes, but never denounce God, of course, and always had a place in my heart. And then he yanked me further into his presence, and I became insatiably hungry for the Word of God. And I mean insatiably. Bible studies, six nights a week. Uh, reading the Bible four to six hours a day. Could not get enough. It was just, uh, I was like I was addicted. It was just, you know. And uh, then I ended up going to a Lutheran college and a Presbyterian seminary. And I've been a pastor, and I've been an an apologist, generally of the Christian faith, against the cults, uh, Islam, atheism, evolution, and things like that. Now, you mentioned church fathers, and uh, what I know about church fathers, I could write on one piece of paper, on a small one at that. I can quote you the names, like Irenaeus, Tertullian, but I don't know anything about them. I don't really put much credence in them, but... uh, Oh, that's a shame. No, there's a lot of good stuff. I read, you know, I read... uh, St. Basil on the Holy Spirit and yeah, Athanasius on uh, incarnation. Yeah, I don't say it's a shame because I think they were married to these guys. I think that it's a shame because they testified to the faith of the early church. And I think that's important for us because we believe that Christianity is a historical religion. It's a historical faith. It's a I historical do covenant. And we need this against Islam right now most of all because these guys are just making up stuff as they go along. Well, and yeah, and I... that's, that's, why, that's why I think the fathers are important. 
Well, particularly against Islam, when uh, I think recently didn't the Pope say that uh, Islam serves the same God? Uh, well, generally speaking, they claim to, yeah. But and, and, in an ecumenical context, we could say that Islam serves the same God, but in, in the sense that it's the God of Abraham that they that they venerate. But you know, ontologically speaking, obviously their ideas about God are very different than ours. Okay, you could even say the ideas of between Catholics and, and Calvinists, like yourself. I, yeah, how do you know that Calvinist? That's right, Presbyterian Seminary. That's right. I'm sorry. I feel, how do you know as a Calvinist? Uh, 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 Terry sent me a little. Gotcha. Thing, okay. All right. It was predestined for you to know that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you're a good Calvinist. I am a nice uh, guy. Well, I believe you are. But the, the uh, we could say that we have certain notions about God, which are kind of in a. Our sensibilities about God are somewhat different, but still, obviously, we both believe in the same God of Jesus Christ. We believe in, you know, God the Father. The Muslims? Uh, no, no, no. Okay. Uh, Calvinists and Catholics. Well, you know, Calvinists Calvinist and Catholics, or just Protestant, we have the identical doctrine of the Trinity, the hypostatic union, communicatio idiomatum, physical resurrection, right? Efficacious atonement. We, we believe in all of this. Right. The problem is in the way we apply it. Yes. What I would argue is that Calvinists technically had a different notion, uh, and again, I don't, I don't mean to be combative about this, but Calvinists technically have a different notion of the character and nature of God than Catholics do. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And Absolutely. I would, even say that I would even, and again, I say this with profound respect, I would even say that, that Calvinist doctrine is quasi-Aryan. <laughs> really? Yes, I would. I have never, ever heard that accusation. Well, basically, it would come out of the idea of this idea of a wrathful God the Father as opposed to a saving God the Son. Oh, I think that's inaccurate, but go ahead. Well, um, we can discuss that if you like. Well, actually, I want to talk about Sola Scriptura, which is really okay. more worthwhile. Okay, uh, sure. But, uh, you know, I would say respectfully that I don't yes, think you, you've got it right about the Calvinist idea of God and, and all that. But, that you know, we could do another discussion on that. That, that would be interesting. Sure. In fact, I wouldn't even want to prepare for it. I would just want to hear it as you said it. Okay. That, so that might be interesting. Okay. Okay. Uh, if you don't mind. I mean, no, no, no. Right. Not at all. Okay. So, well, well uh, you know, I have a couple problems. Well, not a couple. Let me just summarize it. The... Uh, the main thing I have a problem with in Roman Catholicism, which I don't want to talk about necessarily, yeah. is, you know, it's the issue of, of soteriology, doctrine of salvation. I, I believe that uh, Roman Catholic soteriology is synergistic. And for those of you listeners, that means that you cooperate with God and kind of get and keep your own salvation by your efforts, cooperation with God. I have a problem mm-hmm. with that. And you can see why as a Reformed person. Sure, sure. And I, I would actually say if we actually sat down and hashed it out, and I, I don't mean us personally, but Calvinists and Catholics together, I don't think we're that far different. Um, I, I do. I, well, I, I know, and I understand why you would think that. But I think it has to do with stressing a different... I, basically, what this, what this really boils down to is the, the stressing of the idea of man being fundamentally corrupt versus man being fundamentally good but damaged. Yeah, so Catholics Catholics would hold to the latter point. Right. Uh, the Calvinist idea would be to the former point. Right. And I, I, how can that which is created in the image of likeness of God be fundamentally corrupt? Corrupted. It was affected. Absolutely corrupted, but, but damaged to a point, but still within the province of God, still within his, Absolutely. his likeness. Sure. Therefore not fundamentally corrupt. So and well, I think, uh, now we're getting into the terms and what that means. So depravity says that that sin has touched all of what we are. It doesn't mean we're as bad as we can be. And then we have to go to the Scriptures to see what the Scriptures say about the inability and ability of those who are unregenerate. 
Okay. Well, granted, and we, I think, but we can both agree then that neither one, that we cannot do any good apart from the grace of God. Catholics deeply believe that. Yes, but and, it, but it takes a different flavor in that the infused grace of God merits uh, basically salvation. But we're digressing within within the relationship, within the context of the relationship. Right, and that's actually it's kind of similar to what's called New Pauline perspective. Have you heard of that? Yes, I have. Okay, it's a heresy moving around the Catholic Church. I mean, in, in the Protestant Church, actually, which I hate to admit, it's, it's, it's interesting you call it a heresy. By what authority do you call it a heresy? Oh, uh, because the heresy of, is found by the authority of Matt Slick. I know you. Could, no, I'm just, I should have well, figured that out. That is a very honest answer, Matthew. I, I know. I'm just. I was kidding with you. <laughs> You know, I'm joking around because it sounds so good to say Reverend Slick said so. Sure. You know, I, I believe Martin Luther's on 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 record saying that. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> tell right. him Dr. Luther would have it so. Oh, that's yeah. right. Whatever Reverend Slick says has got to be true by the very yeah. nature of it being slick. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I'm making jokes now. We're having fun. No, no. Um, I, again, you you understand. I take this all with a, you know. Well, we're going to talk about this again because I'm enjoying this Absolutely. about that. But I'm, well, I, you, you strike me as a as a very sincere Christian man, and this is this is, this is a wonderful thing to talk to someone like yourself. Well, I'm a sincere man, yeah. as far as I can be sincere with the underlying. With a, with a godless heretic like me, I know. No, no, no. I was going to say I wouldn't point at you. I was going to say as far as my heart, which is, I believe is utterly deceptive and wicked. Uh, well, any goodness we, in there is only God's grace. We definitely have the damage of sin still with us. Well, I do. God gets us through it. Yeah. I don't know about damage. I'm more like. Uh, What's the word? Catastrophe. Yeah, but there's there's worse than you, and you know, and uh, maybe I'm one one of them. So. I don't know. I'm the biggest sinner I know. Well, you, you always meet uh, something better than yourself sooner or later. Well, I, I meet that every night when I go home to my wife. What is that? My wife. Oh, 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 I see. And but the only problem is her taste in men is so bad that I, I it undermines her whole That's rational. Flaw, huh? It's a it's a big one. But thank you. Thank you for for uh, God's grace and mercy and making women blind via love. That's right. All right. Yeah. Okay. You know, let's can we just jump into Sola Scriptura? We can interrupt each other, right? Sure. Absolutely. All right. Okay. And and please understand that uh, you know, I'm not trying to be offensive. No, no, I understand perfectly. Okay. And uh, you know, I'm I'm really a nice guy. I just believe Roman Catholicism is apostate. Oh, I understand. Well, you you wouldn't be a Calvinist if you didn't. Yeah. And I believe you're on your way to hell. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Now, now, think about this. You just got t- told by a guy you're going to hell, and you're laughing. Because my trust is in Jesus Christ. Well, good. I hope it is. Because yeah. maybe you are going to heaven. You're, you're going to heaven, and we'll find out. <laughs> Reverend Slick's got to dig, you know. That's right. Okay. Yeah. I'm smiling, too. All right. Um, Sola Scriptura. This is something I've been wanting to think. Uh, I've been wanting to articulate and talk about with some people anyway. Sure. Um I'm a little bit strange in some areas. I don't agree with everything Calvin said or Luther said. Um, and I don't like some of the things Paul said. Okay, but not liking them doesn't mean I don't believe them, if you know what I mean. Sure. But at any rate. So what I understand Sola Scriptura to mean is that it is the only, that the Bible, the Scriptures, are the only infallible rule to faith or for faith uh, for the Christian. Okay. Would you... What do you think of that? I bitterly disagree with that. You bitterly? Oh, yeah, bitterly. Are you smiling when you say bitter? No, no, no. <laughs> okay, all right. The, 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 I only have, the, the sentence sounds fine. The only, the, only problem, the only word I have a problem with is the word only. Okay. 
That's why you did a question. Well, I have, it for a bu- I have a problem with that for a bunch of reasons. One is because Scripture itself never teaches that, so it is, it, it is inherently contradictory. Well, wait, wait, wait. Um, Can we take one statement at a time? Because that's a really interesting statement. Sure. Because, um, you know, the, uh, I'll talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, and they'll say, where does it say in the Bible that the Trinity exists? Uh-huh. And I say, my response to them is, oh, you just told me, without knowing it, that you don't understand the doctrine. Sure. I said, yeah, yes, I do. I said, no, you don't. Because if you knew how it was arrived at, you wouldn't ask that question. Because it's a systematically arrived at do- uh, doctrine. Well, I, so, would, I would disagree with that, too. The Trinity is systematically say, arrived at. I, I would say the Trinity is an organic, what Thomas Aquinas called a sensus fidelium, a sense of the faith, a sense of the faithful. That people had an organic understanding of the Trinity in the early church, but it was never articulated for Greco-Roman intellectuals. The, ca- the Council of Nicaea articulated it and put it in the terms of, in, in terms that uh, were familiar for platonic philosophy. Well, I agree with that. Like person sure. and nature. But the organic understanding was always there. It wasn't like the, the fathers at Nicaea sat down and said, okay, what's the scripture say? What they, they did do that, obviously, because they had to argue with the aliens using the scriptures <laughs> and other such things. But what they, what they, um, what they primarily were focusing on was what did the, ch- the city churches that the apostles established believe? What was our real sense of this? Was Jesus a different God than God the Father? Was he the same God? Is he, is he a different manifestation of God than God the Father? <laughs> and what they, what they basically arrived at was this, the mystery, the deep, um, mm-hmm. profound mystery of the Trinity. But they but, did so by looking at the Word of God. In part. In part? In large, in large, in large part. Well, what else did they use besides the scriptures? The understanding of the bishops of the city churches that succeeded to the apostles. So where did the bishops get it? From the apostles. So they... Okay, okay, From their oral understanding. So the what that they got is oral under, uh, understanding. It, it, again, it's... A lot of times when you, when you speak with Protestants about sola scriptura, and Catholics champion this idea of tradition, a lot of times Protestants like to see tradition as an itemized list. Okay, what what did the apostles say orally? Do they say this and this and this? And it's not always like that. Sometimes it's an an, an ingrained understanding. And I'll give you an example. Do you realize how subjective that is? But it's not subjective. Yes, it is. A group of people had. Well, let me let me let's discuss something going on in our nation right now, which illustrates this really really well. I think. (laughs) Excuse me. Um, Right now we have liberals, secular liberal uh, uh, forces in this country. They want to take human documents like the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence and interpret them according to secular liberal principles, which we know are alien to the understanding of our forefathers, of our own parents, of the things that made this country great. That would be what Aquinas would call a census fidelium. And you and I can both realize this, and it, it hits us in the gut, and we know it, that when somebody comes along who is a secular liberal and misinterprets the Constitution... We know that something's wrong with that. We always, sometimes we can't put our finger on it, but as a culture, we know it. It's, that's how it was with the early church. That's how it was with the Trinity. Can I inter- interject here? Please. Um, you are, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, but you're no. offering me nothing more than vague feelings about what you interpret they kind of knew generically. Organically. Organically. Yes, which is a valid thing, actually, in the sense of a culture. See, Christianity is not purely academic. Christianity, Jesus entrusted his gospel to a covenant people, to the early church, mm-hmm. just like God entrusted the covenant to the Jews. And, the deal, and they blew it. And they blew it, so did we. 
Yes. And we continue to blow it every day. Because we're but it does, But the Holy Spirit maintains us in it anyway. Uh, well, you know, I would say he maintains only the regenerate, not the unregenerate. Well, that's the Calvinist position, obviously. Well, the regenerate is biblical. And that the yes. visible church is full of unregenerate people. Not that it's completely filled, but it has unregenerate people in it. Well, I would agree with you insofar that the church is held together by its saints. It's those who truly are committed right. to Jesus Christ. And that those of us who... Well, I would say it's held by Jesus, held together by Jesus. Yes, absolutely. But Jesus acting through his saints because his saints are the, the true body. Right, the invisible church. Well, not the invisible church, the sure. visible church, the incarnational church. Well, wait a minute. You see, the visible church is uh, um, over in that city and over in that city and over in that country and this country. So the and it can be in different places. Even the Catholic Church, which I don't agree with, uh, in this in everything, but does say that there are those outside the fold, so to speak, that are still saved. So if they're not even uh, officially well, in the Catholic that Church. terminology, but I, I understand what you're saying. Okay. So the the idea is that the, it's, it's just the, the advantage of me studying cults is really profound. You know, I hear the Jehovah's Witnesses say. You got to be in the true church. I hear the Mormons. You got to be in the true church. I hear this, you know, this group or that group, and there's the true organization of God on earth. Uh-huh. And they always confuse the invisible with the visible church, and say that true salvation, and true understanding, is found only in that visible earthly organization. But the problem is, it's full of un- not full. I mean, you get what I'm saying? Let me say it this way: it has unbelievers in it. Uh-huh. Now that doesn't mean that God can't work through a body of people with unbelievers in it. Certainly. But, you know, I, I know, and you know, that when the New Testament was being written, it was being written largely to correct error that was creeping into the church while the apostles were still alive. Sure. So if if they were having problems while they were there in person, right. what makes you think that we're going to get it any better through 2,000 years when we don't have them around? Because, because Jesus promised that his Holy Spirit would remain with his church, always leading it to all truth. That's why. Where's that? John 14, 26, John 14, and 15, yeah, 16, 17, and, and John uh, 16, 13. Yeah, you know, he was speaking to Philip and then to the apostles, and I would agree with that, you know. But, but, uh, but right after that, he, he talks about how, uh, uh, you know, that the uh, that others will believe in that, that, you know, because of them that you sent me. He's obviously talking about a continuation of the church there. Oh, yeah, I would agree. Uh, but here's, here's, here's the real point, though. The church is the body of Christ. We agree with this. Right. We, we both agree on that point. Um, but a body is a physical thing. It's a visible thing. It's not an invisible thing. Those who do not really b- believe in the true church. I wouldn't agree. Well, I, I know, because you, you believe in an invisible church. Which well, no, I, you know, invisible I, and visible. But, I mean, if we were well, all... I, I, see, I only believe in one church. I think there's only me, one church. And me too. It's not, just, it's not just spiritual or incarnational. It's both, just like Jesus is both. Right. But the true church is the invisible church. Well, the true church is both invisible and invisible. If you if you yeah, do not believe not, yeah. if you do not believe in the, in the true gospel, let's call it for the sake of argument, whether that be the Calvinist understanding or the Catholic understanding, <clears throat> if you do not believe in the true gospel, you're not part of the church. You cut yourself off from it. Whether whether you're you know officially recognized to be cut off or not. Right. And you're not in the invisible church. You're not. A, in other words, you're just not a Christian. Well, you're not a Christian, but you're not part of the visible body of Christ either. Right. Because even even if you seem to be. Right. Now, the, the the issue with this is, I mean, essentially we, we have a difference of opinion in terms of, of ecclesiology. Uh, but apostolic ecclesiology simply didn't make a differentiation between the true church and some, or between an invisible church and a, and a visible church. That wasn't the ancient understanding. Well, I know that. The understanding was, was an, an, that the church is the incarn, an incarnational extension of Christ's own body. 
just as just as the wife is an, is an incarnational extension of her husband's own body. Right, and I agree with that. But what I'm talking about isn't that necessarily, because we both agree that there is a visible church incarnated, so to speak, with Christ, and that He indwells the the believer. John fourteen twenty three. No problem there. But I was just, just for clarification, because we're saying basically the same thing. We just need to make sure that we're agreeing here. Yeah, we, we speak different languages. Is yeah. Our problem. And, and, that's, and I'm understanding what you're saying. I think understanding what I'm saying is just that we both agree that there is a visible church that doesn't necessarily mean everyone in it is Christian. But there is an invisible church, which is only the Christians, and the invisible church is in that visible church. Well, can I throw another term out here? Hopefully this won't complicate matters. I think what you're talking about is the institutional Okay, yeah, visible is institutional, correct. Yeah, but you see, I don't think visible and institutional are necessarily the same thing. When I meet somebody who I believe is a saint, like I'll, I'll give an example of a modern-day uh, person like this, Mother Teresa of Calcutta. I believe she was somebody who followed the gospel, uh, literally. Uh, the problem with this is, uh, is that I think that she is a visible manifestation of the church, and I think those like her are visible manifestations of, of the church, and a schlub like myself happens to be in communion with her uh, by indulgence, actually, not to use a bad word among the Calvinists. But, but um, when, when you say the institutional structure of the church, I know other nuns and other priests who aren't exactly very nice people. They seem to be wearing the collar. They seem to be representing the Catholic Church, but they don't. And we have that we have that in, in the ancient church in Acts fifteen and, and Galatians two, Paul talks about the Council of Jerusalem. He talks about how the false brothers who snuck in the spot right. on our freedom. Yeah, we're saying the same thing. Well, we kind of are, but you're you're focusing on the dimension of the institutional. I'm focusing on the dimension of the incarnational, the idea that the church, the body of Christ, is actually a physical manifestation of the people that Christ established from day one, and there's a continuation there. Absolutely. It doesn't I agree. born in every generation. I agree. And there's prophets, or excuse me, not prophets now, but uh, but apostles um, that were in the visible church back then, the institutional church, and we are the, the descendants of the believers, and also by adoption. Oh, well, all of it, I would say, is right. by adoption. But yeah. none of us yeah. are born Christian. Right, right. absolutely. So, yes. Yeah. Right. Okay, so we basically agree. Okay, we're just speaking a little bit different language here. Yeah. yeah. All right, but that's Catholic all right. Catholic versus Protestant ease. Yeah, and that's okay. We're just kind of sort of, so to speak, fill <laughs> each other out here, see where we're at. All right, and that's fine. Um, so, you know, I just want to throw something else here. As one, as a well, five-pointer, who uh, I really do believe in the inspiration and authority of Scripture, um, I do not. So do I. Okay, good. I do not discount ancient church councils. Okay. Okay. Because in Sola Scriptura does not mean that we don't regard them as being important. But you don't regard them as being authoritative or infallible. Well, I do regard them as being authoritative to a degree. Because I, I have a problem trusting what, well, here it is. I have a tr- problem trusting what anybody says. Yeah. And that's an overgeneralization. I'm going to check everything they say against Scripture. That's what I'm going to do. Well, let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what about, the, and this was the other problem I have with Sola Scriptura, what about the dimension of your interpretation of Scripture? How do you know you're interpreting Scripture correctly? Well, as much as I can get it in agreement with Scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but again, your your interpretation is dimension here. So there's the, yes. there's the fallibility of your own psychology and your own intellect. Absolutely. But the Holy Spirit, as you said, John 14, 26, 15, 26 is in me. And but, also First John two twenty seven says we don't have any need of anyone to teach you, but the anointing which you receive will abide in you and will teach you of all things. Well, that quote from First John is interesting. I get that thrown at me a lot. 
But if you read the rest of the of the epistle, he teaches people things. He gives, uh, yeah. He gives them authoritative instruction. And why would he give us apostles and prophets and teachers? Right. In Ephesians Christians 4. For not all of us are teachers. It says it right. in, 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 in 1 Corinthians uh, 12. Right. The issue here, though, is that Jesus never promised infallibility to each and every member of, of the church that believes in him. Agreed. Okay? You're a disciple of Jesus Christ. I, hopefully, am a disciple of Jesus Christ. But neither one of us are guaranteed infallibility, especially when we disagree and bicker over something. That's so how, how, how does the church manifest its infallibility? Hopefully, through history, it determines, by looking at the scriptures, what the truth really is. Yeah, but see, Jesus gave us more than just mere hope. Jesus gave us an authoritative church. Jesus gave us his spirit. I, I would agree. I have no problem there. Okay, well, again, how, does, how is that manifested? Right now, we're in a situation where you have over 30,000 separate and divided Protestant denominations, all with the same Bible, but all interpreting it differently, sometimes in subtle ways, but very often, unfortunately, when it comes to very basic tenets of the faith, such as the nature of baptism, or the nature of the Lord's Supper, or the nature of salvation itself. Or eternal security. Or, there you go, there's one of them. Right, mm-hmm. so why is it that the, the, the Protestant world is in this state? What is it missing? Well, wait a minute, the Catholic world isn't so perfect either. I'm not the, saying we're perfect, but we have, we, have, we have a final authority. Yeah, you do, but I'm, the point is that even though there are these denominations, which I think, uh, I have to admit, that it's a, it's a bane on Protestantism. It's a, it's a mole on the Protestant face. It, it's horrible, the scar. It's, it's, un, it's unbefitting what you were called to as Christian. I totally agree with you. But there's a, there's an, a yes but in there. But nevertheless, the, the, uh, the, the uh, Roman Catholic Church has got its divisions and its problems and those who disagree within it as well. well even I, with the authority that you've got, you still okay, have well, problems. That is absolutely true. But you see, even in the Bible, you have dissidents. Yes, but because you, Peter got rebuked by We know who the authority was. Right. We know that the apostles held authority. I mean, you had you had Judaizers who were trying to impose circumcisions on Gentile Christians even after the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. Right. But we know that that what what the apostles and presbyters at the Council of Jerusalem taught, and their teaching was infallible and it was final. Okay. It says in Acts 15:28, it is a decision of the Holy Spirit and of us. Well, they were apostles too. They were apostles, but notice it says again and again. I think it says like four or five times in that passage, the apostles and presbyters. The, elders, the term right. presbyter in, in, at that point in, in, in church history and in, in, in scripture itself, the term presbyter and bishop are used interchangeably. It yes, is, they are. I'm sorry? Yes, they are. That's yeah, right. and it's, it, it's referring to what we would call the Episcopal charism. It's referring to the teaching authority of the bishops, the Holy Spirit guiding that. Oh, now here we go. Now, see, I'm with you so far. All right. <laughs> and now... Uh, it's like now we have the official right, so to speak, yeah. of the episcopate uh, mm-hmm. to be able to properly interpret the Word of God. I don't yeah. find that in Scripture. Uh, well, uh, I, I find it all over Scripture. I don't. <laughs> Matthew, uh, Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Let me look at it. Obey those who have the rule over you and submit yourself, for they watch for your souls as those who must give an account, that they may do so with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Well, yeah, it's also said in Romans, uh, I think, of the, the rulers, I think is what you're saying there. It doesn't mean that they're inspired and inherent. Oh, no, but it, but it means that laymen, like yourself or myself, must obey and must submit to them. Okay. See, we, but, but, but we're not getting down to the real issue. Sure. We're not getting down to the real issue. See... I, I agree with that. I agree with submitting to the, sub, the elders. I do agree. Let me just kind of help you out here. I believe that the Christian church has determined what Christian theology is proper, for the most part, all right, for the most part. 
and that um, that we we need to look at councils. We need to look at uh, what the church history has done. I have no problem with that. I've defended that many, many times. And there's, we should not in any way say my interpretation is valid and everything else anybody else says is false. In fact, I recently came up with this, just, just that very issue when examining some scriptures in the past couple of years when I found out that uh, uh, this verse that is so commonly used of pre-tribulation rapture, two men in the field, one taken, one's left, has nothing to do with the rapture. Amen. And in Matthew 13, it seems to say that uh, the first ones gathered with the, when Jesus comes back are not the Christians but the unbelievers. Yeah. Now, okay, I don't know if you've heard of that, but I came up with this and went, okay, because I haven't heard this before from the church, then I... I you know, I'm, I'm I'm worried about that. I should hear this before. The church should have, by this time, already figured something else like this out by looking at the scriptures. Right. So, you know, there's this, there's you know, there's this ambiguity. There's this. Uh, I'm with you a lot of it. The problem I think we're having, though, and this is the problem I have with Roman Catholicism, big time, uh-huh. is because when it says that tradition basically is equal to scripture, then what I see is that you can drive a truck full of heresy through that. You can't if you're missing the the magisterium that Christ promised the Holy Spirit to. But that's a claim, not a proof. Well, it's a, it's a proof insofar as you look at the progression of history, and it's always been there. Well, I, I, know, I know of very few Protestants who would who would say that Jews are not the people of the Old Testament. That modern day Jews are not the the people of the Old Testament, the chosen people of God. I know very few people who very few Protestants right. would claim that. Well, in the same way, you look at the, the succession of bishops within the Catholic Church, and also, I might add, the Eastern Orthodox Church, which is, as we see it, just as Catholic as we are, with the exception of, 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 a, of an argument that we've been having for a thousand years. But the, the, uh, the, the bishops of the Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox Churches clearly, historically, um, succeed to the apostles. The question is, is you know, it is a question of authority. It is, it just, as we said in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, who's, who must you obey? Who must you submit to? Who has the God-given um, control of the church? And we know that Jesus does. Yeah. But who, who does Jesus look to to be the fathers of, of, the, of the church community? Who did Jesus entrust the gospel to? Who is the primary custodian of the apostolic deposit of faith? And I would say it's the bishops of the Catholic and also the Eastern Orthodox Church. Well, I would say these were Eastern Orthodox Church is just as apostate as the Roman Catholic Church. Oh, I know and you the reason that. I would say that is because it contradicts Scripture as the Roman Catholic Church does. But Paul that's said, your interpretation of Scripture. Well, Acts 1711, Paul said to check the Scriptures. Even what Paul the Apostle Acts said. 1711, Paul never said to check the scriptures. Luke says it because he wrote Acts. Yeah, right. And it's Jews in Acts 1711. The Bereans are Jews who have not yet accepted Christianity. And what they are doing is they're checking the Old Testament to see whether or not this Jesus guy who Paul was talking Good. about fulfilled the Messianic prophecy. That, that, excellent. But obviously you've never been to Berea. I have. Berea is a suburb, even to this day, of the big city of Thessalonica in Macedonia in northern Greece. When Paul, once these Bereans accepted Christ, they were bound to tradition just like the Thessalonians whoa, were. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Second Thessalonians two fifteen, Paul writes, "Stand firm and hold fast to the traditions you were taught." But they were con- they were um, affirmed and commended for checking even what they were teaching the apostles themselves against the Word of God. That's the whole point that the they, Word of God became the standard of truth. Well, no. it's not the standard of truth with you guys anymore, if you don't mind me getting a little bit up here. It's tradition and 
but, this, the scriptures. But the words of Jesus were not in scripture at this time. So? The, the apostles held the words of Jesus. They yeah, spoke so? the words of Jesus, and clearly they were just as authoritative, if not more authoritative, than the Old Testament. Uh, no problem. And they inscripture it. They wrote it down. But God said that he would do that. In John fourteen twenty six. 26, they'll bring to your remembrance everything. Absolutely. And so that is a guarantee that the but, apostles themselves, when they were going to write down what they wrote, was inspired and inerrant. And we know that the Word of God is inspired and inerrant. I believe, I believe it is, too. Although our present canon is a different matter. Whether or not that is inspired and inerrant, the scriptures do not speak about that. We get that from church tradition. However, Well, it says it, all scriptures inspired. So is the first letter of uh, Clement to the Corinthians inspired, or the Epistle of Barnabas, or the Gospel of Thomas, or any of these other early Christian works? Well, then the yes. church some church fathers agree that the, the uh, Gospel, uh, the letter of Clement, was inspired, and yes, some didn't. It is. That just and, shows you the church fathers well, well, were in consensus. Well, I would even say that first Clement is inspired today, because we Catholics don't use the word canonical the way you Protestants do. Canonical for Protestants means inspired. So it's inspired, but not in the Bible? Well, I'll give you an example. I, as a Catholic, believe in the message of the Virgin Mary at Fatima in 1917 in Portugal. Wow. I certainly wouldn't classify that on the same level as the apostolic deposit of faith. All I could say is that it agrees with the apostolic deposit of faith. So the Catholic Church judges that to be worthy of belief. But as a Catholic, I'm free to deny it. However, I believe that the Virgin Mary's words at Fatima are inspired by God. Well, I believe they're inspired by the devil. Oh, I know you do. I got a definite reason for that. Well, absolutely. Okay. I think it, 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 those apparitions absolutely contradict revealed word of God. Absolutely. Well, the judgment of the Catholic Church is that they don't. Well, that's and I, the Catholic Church violates the word of God. Well, and again, that's your interpretation. No. And I feel very sorry that you have it. <laughs> well, can we go into that a little bit and see? Because it's kind of a tangent, but can we go into it and take a look? Sure. Sure. Because, you know, Pope Pius XI. Uh-huh. All right, 1857 yep. to 1939. Yep. And what does it mean to make reparation? You know where I'm going? Yes. Okay, for those of you who don't know, reparation means to make amends for wrong or injury done. Reparation for an injustice. Usually reparations, uh, sometimes in money, in material or label, labor, something like that. Uh-huh. And so I'm just speaking to the, everybody else. And so we, if I were to offend one of you out there, say, uh, break into your car and break a window, I'd make reparations by undoing the wrong, by by paying for it to be fixed and apologizing and things like that. That would be, that would be a proper use of reparation, correct? Would you agree? If you broke the window of my car and then you came to me and said, gee, Mark, I'm really sorry, and I, you know, and I as a brother Christian said, that's okay, Matthew, I forgive you, and then you say, look, here's $20 to fix the car, not that that would pay for it these days, but here's $20 to fix the window, that $20 would be the reparation. Okay, that's fine. In that context, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Because Pope Pius XI said in an encyclical, he said, uh, now, though in both these matters we are impelled uh, by quite uh, the same motives, nonetheless we are holding to the duty of reparation and expiation by a certain more valid title of justice and of love, of justice indeed, in order that the offense offered to God by our sins may be expiated and that the violated order may be repaired by penance. Yeah. So he's saying that our sins against God are repaired by what we do. Well, the temporal damage. This is one of these situations where we have. Wait, wait, wait. This is one of the situations where we have Protestants and Catholics not talking to each other. Oh boy. The Pope is not saying that this is apart from the grace of Christ. It is not saying that Christ of the, that we can by our works can can fix the offense. That is not what Pius the Ninth is saying. What he is saying is is that by by prayers and works of sacrifice we repair the damage caused by sin just like you giving me $20 to fix the window. But we don't. 
Well, yeah, we don't. Do. That's Actually, contradicting well, the scripture. Well, let, me, let me give me an example. Let me give you an example. Let's say that it's a very common problem today. Let's say there's a man who's addicted to pornography. Okay. Okay. Once he expo- when he's when he's a young guy before he goes through puberty, before he's been exposed to pornography, he has no knowledge of it. It has not touched him. He does he does not have a sense of the illicit pleasure of pornography. But once he's exposed himself to that, especially after he's done it you know, for a period of years, he acquires a knowledge of it. And you, you're familiar with the biblical term knowledge, right? An intimate experience of it. Right. right. Depending on context, yes. Right. We're, we're, well, but it, but it becomes it becomes part of him. It becomes part of his. I mean, his experience. Right. That, his history. We truly say he was touched by sin there, right? Absolutely. And we would agree with that. Mm-hmm. Now the the problem with this is that he can go to Christ and say, Lord, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. Forgive me for, for all of the pornography-related activities I've been participating in. And, and, and Lord, I know by your blood I can be cleansed. But if he wants to do it perfectly, he can, he can do it in, within the sacrament of confession in the Catholic Church. But even if he does it just by praying, and a Catholic himself can do this, just turn to Christ and tell him you're sorry. He will forgive you, and the guilt of that sin will be removed. And not only will it be removed, it will be forgotten about. No, However, technically God doesn't forget. He just doesn't remember. It's a different thing. Well, he, cho- he chooses not to remember. <laughs> he chooses not to remember. Absolutely. God can ontologically forget. Right. However, the damage is still there because that man's to psychology whom? has been damaged by that. Okay, He's so weak to it now. Okay. He will constantly have the problem with that, and that might be with him for the rest of his life. Right. But if he lives a good Christian life, if he, if he, if he offers prayers for others, if he performs works of charity, if he throws himself, just as you did with Scripture, into the into the study of the things of God and the love of God and the, 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 the service of the church and of his fellow man, if he does this, it takes that away. It, 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 it truly, deeply converts him and sanctifies him. And it's all done within the grace of Christ. He's not doing it as a work apart from Christ. He's doing it I understand what you're saying, but I don't think you're addressing the issue. But that's what the Pope is talking about. Oh, no. I read this encyclical, <laughs> and I was yelling when I, when I first well, read it. I couldn't believe it. You're wrenching him out of context. That's, that's Catholic theology. That's what, that's what Pius IX is talking Wrenching? About. When I talk to Catholics, I hear this ripping sound all around me all the time. Yeah. Well, Things we, being ripped we, out of context. We, we keep a lot of Velcro in the Catholic Church. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but look what he says here. He says that, um, that our sins, our sins, our sin is against God. We sin against God. It's uh, well, again, it's, see, this is why you're, you're taking Catholic terminology and applying it to your own Calvinist. Well, David church. said, I, to yeah. you and you only have I sinned. We that sin against, we, we break that, God's laws. That term in Hebrew only refers to ultimately you. Obviously, if you go home tonight and slap your wife around, God forbid, you're not Never sinning do that. against God, you're sinning against her, too. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. But the reason it's wrong is because God has said it's wrong. Absolutely. We okay. agree with that. But that's, again, this is not what the Pope is saying. But our all sins are ultimately against God. If I hit you and go, yeah. oh, man, I'm sorry, you yeah. forgive me, okay. But the reason it's wrong is because God has said it's wrong. Yes. And so it, my sin against you would be, would be because it's defined by God as a sin first. Yes, and it's not just because he says it's wrong, it's because it objectively is wrong because it violates his righteous and holy nature. Oh, I love that. That's perfect. Because the law is a reflection of God's holy and righteous nature. Absolutely. It's perfect. We fail because we, the law is not perfect. And not, well, excuse me. The law is perfect. It can't save us, not because of it, but because of our failure. Yes. And when we sin, we sin against God and break his law. Yes. Great. And Pope Pius well, says... And in the Christian covenant, actually, I mean, I, I hate to, again, get another tangent, but we, actually, we Christians actually aren't under the law. 
we Christians are under a covenant of grace. We're in the co- covenant of love, which is a covenant law. of love, a covenant. Absolutely. Right. So technically speaking, if you really want to get theological, we're not even technically bound by the Ten Commandments as written. We're, te- we're bound by the righteousness behind the Ten Commandments. I would agree with you. Which are personified by Jesus Christ. So I didn't expect you to say that, but that's very insightful and very correct. Yes, yeah, and, and again, Catholics and, and, and Calvinists obviously agree on this point. Right. If, if we sin, we sin against our relationship, our covenant with Jesus. We break that. But if a Jew sins, if a Jew breaks the commandment, he's, he's violating the letter of the law and therefore is subject to the punishments of the law. We're actually subject to something a lot worse. Yeah, the law becomes a, a, a guide at this yeah. point, Galatians 3.24. But look, yeah. this is what Pope Pius XI said. By our sin, that our sins, our sins may be expiated and that the violated order may be repaired by penance. Look, we don't repair our relationship with God by our works. Jesus did this. The blood of Jesus Christ but our works, does our sins. But, wait, Jesus but our works did are from Jesus. <clears throat> no. Jesus is the one who gives us our faith. Jesus is the one who appoints us to salvation. Jesus is the one who grants that we believe. Jesus is the one who grants us uh, repentance. Amen, 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 amen. Jesus is the one and the only one who gets any glory and credit in this. Amen. There is no way that I can make in any way, shape, or form any reparation for my sin before God. And to say I could is blasphemous and demonic. Well, here's, here's the difference. And again, I'm going to... again. We have, a, we have a, a, a linguistic problem here. Everything you're saying is the Catholic faith. Everything you just said. The problem is, is that I, I would agree with you that there's nothing that we can do to make reparation for ourselves. But that's what he said. You do. do it through us. He said you do. But you see, that's, but you're, you're missing what's implied by the Pope's statement. And you, got, you, have, you can't just take this one statement by Pius IX made in the, in the 19th century sometime. You have to look at it in the context of Catholic theology and what he's actually referring to. See, this is when we get into a lot of problems. I could, uh, earlier you accused me of saying, oh, gee, I'm, I'm misapplying the, the, the Calvinist view of God, that you know, I'm kind of wrenching out of context. Maybe I am. And the, the point is, is that if you try to, you, you have to understand what another Christian is saying within their own Christian tradition and not try to apply it outside of its context. That can be, that, that, that's 90% of our problems why we have disunity among Christians. And a lot of times we are saying the same thing, but we, we say it in such different ways. I mean, Calvinism comes out of a Northern European mentality. Roman Catholicism comes out of a Mediterranean mentality. These are very different ways of talking about sometimes the same things. And I'm not saying we don't have our disagreements. We do. We have substantive issues that we need to hammer out. One of them is right. And what does he say? He said you make reparation for sins. I mean, I can't do that. If we could make reparation for our sins then Jesus didn't need to die on the cross, Galatians 2.21. If the law in any way is able to make us be right with God, Christ didn't need to die. He's the one who made reparation for our sins. He's the one who did it, and we have no part in that. There, there are two men. Both of them beat their wives. Put their wives in the hospital. One of them is, both of them are sorry for it. One of them not only is sorry for it, but also goes and pays uh, his wife's medical bills. The other one is sorry for it, but says, I don't need to pay her medical bills. Which one of them is pleasing to God? Neither. But they both they both were sorry for it. Neither. <laughs> Neither. Because... Oh, there's that complete depravity again. Yes, absolutely. Well, because only that which is done for the glory of God really is truly good. Because God says in Romans 3, 10, 11, 12, oh, no one does good. No, exactly. On a human exactly. level. Exactly. But that's what I'm getting at. If we do anything good, if we feed the poor, if we, if we clothe the naked, if we do anything, if we do it by our own merit, 
expecting to get something for it, we're, we're, we're wasting our time. Okay, you're, at best you're a humanist. If you do it for love of Jesus, though, if you go with the glory of God, as uh, you prefer to put it, if you do it for that motive, okay, then there is merit for it because there merit? is Jesus working through you and it is a fragrant offering to the Father in wait, that wait, context. Just curious, the, you used the word merit there, which triggered something in me. Uh, may I ask why you use that word merit? Uh, well, just for the basic reason why that's what it is. It is meritorious in the sense that it is offered up in union with the sacrifice of Christ. Oh, that to me is blasphemy, total blasphemy. That I'm well, going to dare offer... Him, well, I'm sorry, I'm going to cut you off. How can I offer anything up with the sacrifice of Christ to be pleasing to the Father? Colossians 1.24. You want to read it? Okay, I'll read it. And I think I know what you're going to say. Uh-huh. Okay. But I don't think you understand what I'm getting at. But maybe you do. Now rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and for my flesh, and do not share in behalf of this body, which is the church filling up, and that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions, right? Now, is anything lacking in Christ's afflictions and the suffering of Christ is another translation? No way. Okay, and of course not. Right. Okay? The only thing that's lacking in the suffering of Christ are people's yes to it. Okay? I, I would I will go with that for now. But by the actions of Christians in love, in the grace of God, acting as God's instrument on this on this earth. That which is not that, that which creates barriers between the sacrifice of Christ made on Calvary two thousand years ago and the moment of salvation when somebody completely and deeply accepts Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, that is meritorious in the sense that it is done in union with Christ. It is, what does it merit? It merits. It merits. Uh, it merits. Um, salvation, basically. Oh, so you earn your salvation? No. Yes. No. Yes. No, you don't. Jesus earns your salvation. No, you said you did a concert with him. You. But you did you did with him. With that? You, you, you're, okay, this is. Oh, I, no, I know what you're saying. Yeah, you know. I'm saying that what you're saying is that the infused grace of Christ that you get at baptism and through the participation of the sacraments enables you to do good works by which ultimately you're judged for salvation, which is why... Well, let, let me ask you this, just so I understand where you're coming from. Are, can you be baptized, accept the Lord as your Savior, and then go and live any way you please, and you're still saved? Yes. You do, you do believe that? Yes, absolutely. And let me, let me, okay, let right, me follow up. Let me follow up. Let me follow up. Yeah, yeah. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, you're a new creature. Now I'm, I'm re- actually regenerate. I am going to go out and live how I choose and how I, I, I please. Because I'm changed, I'm going to live in a manner consistent with that regenerative world. Well, I, yeah, I, I, I you know, we, we might as well be speaking, you know, but that's and Arabic true. to each other. Because, well, it's true. I'm sorry, it's not, and that's not the belief yes, it of is. the church. Oh, I used to live with a girl, married another girl. I used to be cussed so much. I did the porn thing when I was younger. When I got saved... All that passed. Because, and I could go out and do what I want. But you know what? I didn't want to do that because of the regenerative work of God. So when you say, and people say to me, Well, then you were liberated from that, and God, God be praised for something like yeah, that. Yeah. Okay, but that doesn't happen to everybody who accepts the Lord. Okay? That is, that is a nigh-unmiraculous uh, uh, manifestation of God's grace. Well, you I have think, to praise God for it. Now we're talking about the difference between regeneration and the, of appearance and, and what's real. Well, would you agree with me that the vast majority of people who accept Jesus at a Billy Graham crusade go back and just live their, their plain old I would life. say yes, unfortunately, because it's not a real presentation in a lot of ways what the gospel really is. Okay, well, but some people struggle in their Christian walk. Some yeah. people have difficulty uh, accepting Jesus. Okay, yeah. mm-hmm. and the deal is though is that 
your relationship with Jesus, and Paul says this in Ephesians 5, is like a marriage covenant. Okay? If you say, I do, on June 24th in 1978, whenever somebody gets married, if you say, I do, on that day, you, have, you can't just say, I do, then. You have to say, I do, every day for the rest of your life. Right, but, but a commitment of, by a covenant agreement is not the same thing as God's redemptive work in us. See, now we're kind of getting sure, up in our sure it is. It, that, that is no, nature, it isn't. That's the nature of the covenant. No. It, the nature of salvation is a covenant. A covenant, well, is a covenant a pact, of salvation. A covenant is a pact or agreement between two or more parties. Regeneration. No, a contract is a pact or agreement between two or more parties. A covenant, a covenant is, is an exchange of person. A covenant, ah, oh, the suzerain vassal treaty relationship, which, uh, which Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, is patterned after. Uh-huh. Okay. And uh, you know about that. Meredith Klein, I hope, and his brilliant well, work that he yeah, did but in a, Yeah, and... and the Semitic use of the covenant was like a contract, but, but it's, it's deeper than a, than a plain old legal agreement in the West. Oh, yeah, it was so much. That's why God uh, passed himself through the, uh, the divided animal. Yeah. Because, yeah. But, see, that's what a covenant is. It's a pact. It's an agreement. And God does it because that's his word, and, and uh, we can go to the issue right. of the but trust see, of his but word. But a covenant is a two-way street, though, Matt. Absolutely. Okay. But Absolutely. God, look, Jesus saved you. Jesus will never retract that salvation. And You're always this child. You have a mark on you, as it says in the book of Revelation. We can, okay, we can, look, next week. Let's talk about that next week. Can we call next week? <laughs> okay. Okay, because yeah. I'm enjoying this, seriously. Okay, sure, let's go, Because... Um, we're getting off so many different tangents. Yeah, no. Easy you know. to do. Easy to do. And, and I actually enjoying talking to you, for real. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, I mean that. Okay. All right. Well, okay. But, well, uh, if, you, if you allow me to call you that. that I have no problem. Brother. I'm, uh, I, if I Why don't you go into hell, Matthew? You don't know. Well, you know, uh, put my faith in Christ. But, but um, <laughs> I, I'm going to read a couple. I that. Okay, I'm going to put a couple of quotes out. To, ouch. Sorry, a little twist there. We only got about eight minutes, okay? Yeah, so. please. I'm sorry. And do you want to come on next week? I'll come on whenever you like. Okay, let's do it next week again. And uh, I like this bantering kind of going all over the place. It's kind of fun. Ah. Okay. But, um, and you're polite about it. So that's oh, what I appreciate you're very polite, too. Okay, thanks. Well, yeah, love you, Huggy. Okay. So. <laughs> See, the union of Protestantism and Catholicism oh, no. is happening right here oh, on no. Matt's Matt, Matt show. Only in a, in a, you know, nice way. I'm a nice guy. But I'll right. tell you. I'm, Council of Trent couldn't do what Matt Slick is doing. Oh, the Council of Trent. Oh, <laughs> take that document and burn it. Okay. Oh, Lord. Yeah, That's well. Okay. Yeah. Huh? Par- paragraph 1821, the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, uh, let me go to uh, actually uh, paragraph 2010. Uh, moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity, we can merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for sanctification. How do you merit grace? Uh, in, in the same way St. Paul can in first, uh, first, uh, I'm sorry, Colossians 124. There's no meriting grace in Colossians 124. When it, okay, and again, this is Catholicese, and this is yeah. Language. Well, it is. Did you hear that rip? <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I, I, I can, I speak the language. I can translate it for you. You can. Okay. I can translate this it too. Was, you have to understand. This was not written for Protestants. This was not written for people with with, with Calvinist mentalities. This was oh. written for people with Catholic mentalities. But you know, Paul was a Calvinist. Well, I'm kidding. I just, it's an open-ended kind of a joke. That's a real big anachronism, but okay. Yeah, it totally is. But I, I like saying that. And I, you know, I use the, the true Bible, the one Paul used, the NASB. I say that to people all the time. And then they go, what? <laughs> they don't get I'm joking with them. But anyway, right, right. how do you merit for yourself grace? Because grace is the unmerited favor of God. Yes, it is. We so we how do you agree. merit grace? We agree. It, it, it's not referring to that. What it's referring to... merit for ourselves grace. It, what, it, what it's referring to is opening yourself up to receiving grace. Well, how come it doesn't say that? 
I mean, because it's, it's, not, it's not being translated for a Calvinist. It's, it's, I'll give an example. In, 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 in Second Peter one four, yeah, I can't understand it because I'm a Calvinist. No, no, no. Not that you can't understand it. It's just it wasn't written for your sensibilities. It wasn't written for, for you to say, "Aha, this is what this means." For example, I don't merit my grace. Athanasius, the guy who who was the primary mover for the definition of the Trinity at the Council of Nicaea, once said, "God became man so that man might become God." Oh, heretic! Yeah, right. right. That sounds heretical to me too. But if you understand him in the Greek context, he's not saying that at all. He's referring to the same thing Saint Peter refers to in in Second Peter one four when he says, "We we we are to become partakers of the divine nature." Right. That's all he means. Right. But if you take that Athanasius and throw him out there, he sounds like a New Age cult member or something. Take him out of context, sure. When I'm reading this, you should say, "Did you hear that rip, Matt?" You could have other left. Well. But it says that I got the Catholic Catechism right here. Hold yep, it's over here. I'm coming back. Here it is. Okay. okay. All right. Good. I got it right here, and I could go to paragraph 2010. Uh-huh. If you want to, want me to do that or not? Or yes. I don't want to take your time to talk. That or not. Let me talk. Whatever about. you want to talk about. Okay. Hold on. 2010. Okay. Here it is. I'm. Okay. I uh, hope I got this right. Let me go to Catholics can't organize anything. Are you finding it okay? Well, I got it. I just. Okay. You know, I, don't, I haven't looked at it in a long time. Uh, let's see. I'll go read paragraph 9 ahead of it. Filial adoption and making us partakers by grace and the divine nature can bestow true merit on us as a result of God's gratuitous justice. This is our right by grace, the full right of love, making us co-heirs with Christ and worthy of obtaining the man, promised inheritance of eternal life. The merits of our good works are gifts of the divine goodness. See, here we go. Yes. Grace has done before us. But you notice what I just said. Us. Read that one sentence again. The okay. merits of our, of our works are gifts of the divine goodness. Yeah, see, they themselves flow uh, from God. They're not from us. I agree that anything we do is by God's grace. But, yeah, those, works, but those works don't merit anything. It's salvation, so salvifically with God. They, they do in the sense of maintaining oh. a covenant commitment that you make with Jesus Christ when you first accept him. Oh, so you keep yourself saved. Jesus keeps you saved. No, you said you had to maintain your covenant faithfulness with God. That means you've got to stay in the covenant. It means you've got, to, you've got to keep yourself saved. No, Jesus keeps you saved. No, you're saying... Let me say this. I'm understanding you to say this. Well, again, this is a stupid question to ask a Calvinist, but when you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, did you... Was your, was your assent involved? Was your willing acceptance involved in that? Yeah, but I got tricked into being saved. It's another story. But, well, but yeah, I, I know what you're saying. The average Christian. We receive Christ, John one twelve. But we're born and again, not of our own will, John one thirteen. Not well. That again, John one thirteen doesn't mean not overriding our will. Wow. But, but our, our will is clearly involved in accepting Jesus. Otherwise, Absolutely. why why does he need us to, to accept him at all? Why didn't he just save everybody automatically when he died two thousand years ago on the cross? Because he chose not to. Well, yeah, but why? Because he chose not to. That's yeah, the answer. But why? Because, because he wants our participation. He wants our No, yes. it's because he works all things after the counsel of his will. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. Not us. Right. He made the choice. Yeah, but, but, the, but the point is, is that our, our will is still involved. Somehow. Yes, but then the question of regeneration preceding faith or vice versa, which I don't hold to either one. Well, it is, it is a mystery. We, yeah, we have one we, minute. We, we, can, we can agree on that. We have one minute. Oh. Tell you okay. what. Well. Why don't you, you go ahead and kind of Finish up. And I'll <laughs> we'll say that. Sola Scriptura. Well, we should uh, talk about that sometime, shouldn't we? 
Yeah, I guess we should. All, all, all I would say is that I, I think that we I think that we just need to get our terminology uh, correct in terms of what is being referred to when we have disagreements like this. Because a lot of times it's, it's it's sad that we have disagreements over things that we shouldn't disagree. Right. About. Well, I, I always always have taught and believe. Always understand what the other person is saying so you cannot accuse them falsely. Try and okay. understand what they're saying, which okay. is why I'm dialoguing so much with you to make sure that my studies of Roman Catholicism are accurate. So I far, think. they are. <laughs> but I've seen. Maybe you can say no, they're not. I'm open to being corrected. That's not a problem. Well, I, I think there's the dimension of talking in tongues in this in the sense of different different uh, systematic languages. I'm not sure what of that theology. meant. But I'm not sure what that meant, but that's okay. <laughs> Uh, well, we can talk about it sometime. Well, okay, next week you can come on? Uh, yes, I would. Thank you. Thank okay, you. This, is, this is fine. I mean, if you don't blind, okay, we'll go back and forth with Banch. I'll call you a heretic some more. Oh, good. Oh, boy. There you, <laughs> you call me one. <laughs> All right? Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you. <laughs> oh, man, I can come back with that. That's right. But, hey, I really do appreciate you calling. Okay, and, yeah, I appreciate uh, it, brother. Thank you very much. Okay, and we'll see you next week. Same bat time, same bat station? Same bat time, same bat station. Okay. Yeah. Okay, God bless you. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. And uh, everybody have listened to uh, Faith and Reason with me, your host, Matt Slick. We've had Mark uh, Bonacore on the line. And uh, you know, actually a nice, pleasant conversation. We disagree. We're starting to hash that out and get down to the nitty-gritty. Hopefully we'll do more of that next week. God bless, everybody. We'll see you. This has been Faith and Reason with Matt Slick. For more, go to CARM.org. That's C-A-R-M dot org. Well, good evening, everyone. It's Wednesday. It's uh, time for us to have some discussion on Catholicism again. Every Wednesday night, that happens. Well, most every Wednesday night. Tonight on the line, we have Mark Bonacore. Are you there, Mr. Bonacore? I am, Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Can I call you Mark? Oh, absolutely. Okay. kind of figured I could anyway, but just want to make it official. <laughs> And uh, we had you on last week. Let me get my mic turned, headphones turned up here a little bit. There we go. And uh, we had you on last week, and I thought our conversation was about even, and uh, we were polite to each other. Oh, well, least we can do, huh? Well, yeah. You know, um, we, uh, you know, I totally disagree with Roman Catholicism, and I don't pull any punches on that. But uh, you know, it's really good to be able to talk to somebody without uh, uh, becoming obstreperous, I guess. You know. <laughs> so, at any rate, uh, welcome back to the show. Thanks for calling Thank in again, and uh, you know, our uh, our hour should be pretty good. I hope. Oh, I hope so. And you can call me a heretic. I won't mind. Well, maybe a material one, not a, not a formal one. Okay. Well, that's all right. Okay. Yeah. Um, now we were talking, or tried to. We shot all over the place uh, on the issue of, of uh, sola scriptura. We really didn't talk about it a whole bunch. I mean, no, we kind of got sidetracked, huh? Yeah, I'm just seeing how we, you know, how each of us plays the game here, so to speak. Yeah. And uh, that's okay. But tonight, we kind of agreed to discuss the issue of sola scriptura, uh, that issue being, is the Bible alone sufficient for spiritual truth? And, uh, of course, sola scriptura, just by way of reminder for those who are tuning in now, uh, that uh, the doctrine sola scriptura, that means only scripture. It affirms that there is no other infallible rule to faith for the Christian church other than the scriptures. And it affirms, this doctrine teaches, that uh, only the scripture is inspired, and that it and that all other sources of knowledge are subject to the Word of God and should be compared to it. And let's see what else. So that the Bible is a final word of authority and uh, the like. Now it does not deny, though, <coughs> excuse me, it does not deny that uh, church councils have a place or that certain areas of tradition uh, can be uh, looked at uh, favorably. <coughs> okay, uh, so that's the 
but the doctrine of Sola Scriptura basically says the Bible is the only infallible rule of faith for the Christian church. Okay? You I hear you. All right. And I don't agree, but I hear you. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to say you don't agree with that. <laughs> uh, no. Okay. And uh, why is that? Well, uh, I guess this is what we were trying to tackle last time. Uh, three real reasons. Okay. Um, I guess maybe the most efficient way to do this, can I state the three reasons and then sure. you can take them apart? Sure. <clears throat> okay, well, uh, one, one reason, I'm going to make one little notation on top of the three reasons, is that the term infallible actually applies to the interpretation of the Bible, not to the content of the Bible itself, because the Bible requires an interpreter, obviously. Um, you know, you can check out, for example, Acts uh, chapter 8, uh, 30, 31, I believe it is. <clears throat> Philip's talking to the Ethiopian. And who's reading the book of Isaiah, and he says, how do you, do you know what you're reading there? And he says, how can I unless someone interprets it for me? So, once again, I think that infallibility is a matter, it applies to the correct interpretation of the Bible, whereas inerrancy, we, we can say for certain, and we can agree on this, that the, the Bible is inerrant, meaning that it contains no errors. <laughs> but infallibility obviously falls back to, are you interpreting the Bible correctly? Because even Satan uh, uses the Bible to... Uh, to uh, advance his arguments as he did with Jesus in the desert. Okay, <clears throat> that aside, um, excuse me, I'm finding a little cold here tonight. Uh, that aside, three reasons. Number one is, um, Sola Scriptura is a self-contradicting proposition because it is not in the Bible itself. Nowhere does the Bible command that we use the Bible alone or Scripture alone as, the, as our sole rule of faith. And if if the Bible itself is your sole rule of faith, but yet the Bible itself doesn't teach that, obviously, you're appealing to something outside of the Bible. And I would say that uh, Sola Scriptura is a, is a man-made 16th century creation, which is alien both to the early church and to the content of Scripture itself. second reason is that the Bible, or, or rather Sola Scriptura, does not yield, uh, or that is produced, consistent and repeatable results over time. For example, Matthew, you yourself are a good Calvinist, Protestant Christian. Well, you obviously believe that uh, Calvin, Calvinist Reformed theology, Calvin, your brand of Calvinism, uh, you obviously believe that that's Christian orthodoxy. Well, if Sola Scriptura is uh, true, then anyone who is intelligent and honest and a sincere, committed, Christ-loving Christian will obviously read the Bible and if its objective content is, as you believe it to be, uh, reformed Calvinistic teaching, that's what they're going to walk away from if they read it consistently and honestly and, uh, and openly. But we, that, that simply isn't the case. All sorts of modern-day Protestants read the Bible very differently from, from the Calvinist school of theology, even though they are... Uh, uh, um, you know, committed, sincere, Christ-loving Christians. Uh, also, the early church, in the early church, there was nothing close to Calvinism. So the Christians back then obviously didn't read the Bible the same way you do. Uh, so once again, we, we return to the idea of an interpreter. Uh, the third reason, and I'm sorry if I'm taking too much time, the third mm -hmm. reason is that as an historical experiment um, invented by the, by, the, uh, by the Protestant reformers, Sola Scriptura is a miserable failure. And I say it's a miserable failure because at present we have over 30,000 and counting separate and divided Protestant denominations, all with the same Bible and all employing Sola Scriptura, but all reading the Bible and interpreting it differently. And clearly this is not Jesus' will for his church. Ephesians 4, 1-6 speaks of how there is one faith, 
one Lord, one body. So we are supposed to be united in, in formal doctrine, as it says in 1 Corinthians 1.10. And uh, as Jesus himself asked for when he prays to the Father in uh, John 17. So um, as a principle of uh, assuring Christian orthodoxy or Christian unity, Sola Scriptura simply doesn't work. You have to have something else. You're missing something. You need some kind of authoritative interpreter. And the problem is, is that Christians need to agree on what that final objective standard of interpretation is going to be. This, this is this is the real nature of our disagreement. Okay. Well, there's a problem, though. The issue of interpretation or uh, interpretation of Scripture is is uh, not the, the topic. The topic is is the Bible the sole rule of authority, sufficient rule of authority. Now, it's like this. Look at this. Is the car our sole way of getting around. I mean, it's just horses and planes. But the idea, if someone uses a car and misuses it, and different people like different kinds of cars, doesn't invalidate the idea of the truth and the working of, a, of an automobile. It's just because someone might misuse it is immaterial to the issue of whether or not it itself is sufficient or not. So if someone misuses it, it has no relevance on whether or not it is sufficient. But you, where is your authority for saying that it's sufficient? No, I'm just, this is just logic. It's just flat-out logic. Well, if you have, but no? Christianity is driven by Christ-revealed doctrine, not well, by yeah, but, logic. No, it's, this is, well, God is the author of logic, and we can use logic. And we can use logic, absolutely, but, but not in place of revealed revelation. Obviously correct. And yeah. Paul did use logic when he argued, uh, Legizomai, he argued in Acts 17.17, 17, and so we're to do the same thing. And just logically speaking, it's just, you know, it's, just, it's a fallacy to, to say that the Bible can't be the only rule of authority because... People don't use it right. Uh, it's a category mistake. Well, no, it's not because you still have to you still have to say why is the Bible the only rule of authority? That's your logical fallacy. Well, there. no, actually, no, it's not. It's not a logical fallacy to make a statement. It's a statement either true or false. Now, well, that's that statement that, is false. Well, now, it, prove, it, prove to me that it isn't. Well, well, hold on. We'll get back to the issue of of infallibility. Excuse me. Of um, is the scripture alone sufficient? See now again. We have the Bible, and it's true. We both agree it's inspired and without error, correct? Yes, but I, I can also point to the reason why I believe that it's inspired and without error. And so can I. Where? Well, hold on a second. Now, because we, 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 do, we, we, excuse me, we do both believe in that, we may have come from the, at a different angles. So why, why do you believe that it's inspired and without error? Because that's the nature of God's Word. And you know that through how? Because How do you know that this collection of books is inspired without error, whereas some uh, some other books are not? Because How Jesus said, my, he said, my sheep hear my voice, and they hear me, they follow me, and he gives eternal life to them. The nature, the nature of hearing God's voice is to know his word. Yeah, but that doesn't tell you what books are inspired and what books sure are not. Sure it does. Because the Christian church, the true Christian church, recognizes the word of God and authenticates what it is. It doesn't proclaim what it is. It recognizes what it is. How so? Because they know the voice of God. Yeah, but what if I say that the voice of God is also in certain aspects of sacred tradition? Well, you have to prove that. Now listen to this. These books, the church holds well, to be sacred and canonical, not because she subsequently approved them by her authority, after they had been composed by unaided human skill, or nor simply because they contain revelation without error, but because being written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they have God as their author, and were as such committed to the church. First Vatican Council, Session 3, Paragraph 2, Number 7. Yeah. 
So that's oh, why. Oh, that's oh, what I'm saying. Right. We, we agree on that. We're not saying that the authority of the, of the Word of God is, is, is you know, uh, something totally separate from the nature of the Scriptures themselves. We're not saying that at all. What we are saying, however, is that the only way that you can know which books are inspired and which books aren't is by the authority of the Catholic Church. No. No, I would never agree with that. Well, I never. wouldn't agree with it, but you don't understand the history of it. Well, I, no, 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 no. The history is, excuse me, we're going a little bit, we're raving the bar a little bit here, okay? And I, you know, I'm still trying to be polite, but sure. the church was never without scripture. Even when, when uh, Paul was walking around and nobody had written any New Testament stuff, they weren't without scripture. They were with the Old Testament, the, yeah. old, the exactly. revelation of the Old Covenant. Exactly. And what did Jesus refer to when teaching them on the road to Damascus, road to Damascus, road to Emmaus in uh, Luke 24? He said he taught about the Old Testament scriptures. And he kept referring to the which scriptures. Which, the scriptures. But, but that doesn't mean that Jesus never referred to traditions either, because he did. He certainly did refer to traditions. And every time I, my research, and I'm, I mean, I'm open to being corrected, but every bit of research I've seen on Jesus' comment about tradition has been negative. Now, maybe I'm wrong. No, okay. no not at all. Uh, Hebrews, um, Hebrews. Uh, Matthew uh, 23, 1-3, Jesus refers to the chair of Moses. Yeah. The chair of Moses is an element of Jewish of, of Jewish uh, tradition, of oral tradition. Yeah. There is no reference to, the, to a successive chair of Moses, a successive uh, uh, teaching authority. But look, the context of it is, he says, the scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, they uh, all they do, they tell you, do and observe, but don't do according to their deeds. Yeah. They say one thing and do another. Oh, you know, I would, I would say the same thing about a bad pope. I would say... Well, there are plenty of those. Well, yeah. Sinful ones? Sure. Ones that taught errors? No. Oh, Yeah. Well, That's I, another, again, another show. We, 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 can have a, we can have a conversation on that sometime. But, okay. But, but, but the, the bottom line with this is that when it comes to uh, t- teaching uh, uh, oral traditions, Jesus refers to uh, the golden rule. He re- oh, let, me, let, me, let me keep on, on, on Matthew 23. He, he speaks of, um, of the chair of Moses. The chair of Moses, if you, if you speak to Orthodox Jews, they will say that that is the teaching authority of Israel, the authority to, to interpret both the written Torah and the oral Torah, the Mishnah. Okay? And Jesus is saying, do and observe whatever the, the scribes and Pharisees, which means the assembled Sanhedrin, tell you to do, because they have the authority to teach you, but don't follow their personal example because they're hypocrites. We yeah. Catholics would believe the same thing about a bad bishop or a bad pope. Okay? That their, their, their teaching authority and their personal behavior are two different things. Well, what happened in Matthew 23? Jesus was affirming, yeah, you need to affirm the truth of the, of the, of the teachings of Moses. Yeah, but see, for Jews, the teachings of Moses were both oral and written. There was the Mishnah. I know, and their traditions of the Mishnah led the Jews to reject Jesus. That, no, that's not true. Yeah. The Pharisaic the, traditions of certain Pharisaic rabbis, which is who he, the, he condemns in Matthew 15. And the Sadducees. And the Sadducees as well. They had some problems on, on themselves. Yes, because of their it traditions. Is, well, it wasn't because it was traditions. They, they, yeah. They, no, they, they submitted traditions to Scripture in a lot of ways, too, just like you guys do. The problem was is that they had heterodoxy. The problem was is that the, the Pharisees and, and, and Sadducees and all of their sub-sects uh, didn't agree on one set of Orthodox doctrine for Judaism. Well, how do you know they had heterodoxy? Because uh, so, St. Paul exploits it in, in Acts 23. So you know they had ex- heterodoxy by the Scriptures? Well, also by... By, by history, we know that they had heterodoxy. But the only reason... And by their own admission, that we know that they had heterodoxy. Heterodoxy meaning that they all believe different things. Well, but heterodoxy, yeah, this means different, but we know the heresy, believing something that's false. How would we know, and we're taking a tangent here off the issue of sufficiency of the Scripture into interpretation, how would you know 
if someone's interpretation of Scripture is correct? You would know because they would have Christ-given authority. No, 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 no. That, that's what the Mormons tell me. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses tell me. That's what the Christian scientists well, that's, tell me. Well, ca- Catholics mean something different by it. No, they don't. I, no, we do. No. We do. No. We do. <laughs> I, if you no, have, no, here's the difference between us, Matt. Protestants have no objective final standard of authority. You say it's the yes, Bible, it's the but Bible. you all interpret the Bible differently. No, we don't. That. No, 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 no. That, that's, that's not an accurate statement. You don't interpret the Bible differently? No, 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 no. Among, re, among Reformed Calvinists, no, 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 no. Baptists? No, there's, that's equivocation. Okay. No, it's not. It's, it refers to a unity of doctrine. No, the opposite of a unity of doctrine is heterodoxy. Even in the Catholic Church, there are differences of opinions of interpretations. We have differences of opinions, but we also have an objective standard of authority, but which that, is the formal teaching of the, of, the, of the Church of Rome. Then why is it so many believers in the papacy don't always believe everything the papacy says, if it's because so authoritative? hypocrites? Ah, so people are allowed to interpret the Bible apart from Rome? Uh, not formally, no. Well, you know... We're allowed to conduct theology, but we're... It, look, it, you're it, not allowed to, to interpret the Bible apart from Rome. Apart, we're not... Rome is the final authority. If a, if a dispute arises between Catholics in terms of interpretation, Rome has the authority to, to, to give the final definitive uh, answer on okay. that. Okay, can I they read two paragraphs? Yeah. Out of C- out of the, I'll refer to it as CCC, the Catholic Catechism and the... Uh, Catechism and the Catholic Church. Yeah, I always mess that up. Yeah, right. the, the triple C, the CCC. The ta- this is paragraph 85 and then paragraph 100. The task of giving an authentic interpretation of the Word of God, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the Church alone. Its authority in this matter is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. Yeah. This means that the task of interpretation has been entrusted to the bishops of, in communion with the successor of Peter, the Bishop of Rome. Yeah. And paragraph 100 says, The task of interpreting the Word of God authentically has been entrusted solely to the magisterium of the Church, that is, to the Pope and to the bishops in communion with him. Uh-huh. So that would mean to me, Mark, that if you were to go to the Scriptures and interpret anything, you are not allowed to do that unless you repeat, basically, what Rome has already told you. No, it means that I'm not. It does not mean that I do not have intellectual um, freedom in order to interpret the Bible and delve into it. In fact, if you read other passages in the Catechism, and if you have me on again, I'll be happy to have this written for you. Okay. Uh, it does speak about the fact that we do have uh, all sorts of freedom in that area. What that particular passage of the Catechism is referring to is that Rome holds the final authority. That if there is a dispute among Christians, the final interpretation is that of the bishops in communion with the, with the successor of Peter at Rome. So you, you're not allowed to disagree with them, are you? Not, not when it comes to final authority. No, I am under authority, Matthew. I, just as okay. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says that I am. Okay, so let me get this straight. That you are not allowed to. Uh, let's see. I'd say this the right way, not trying, trying to misrepresent you or it. But sure. correct me if I don't say it right. You're not allowed to interpret the Word of God in a manner that contradicts what Rome has already said. That contradicts what Rome formally teaches. Okay, that's good. That, that what Rome, whatever Rome formally teaches, you are obligated to believe it and teach it, repeat it. Uh, yeah. Okay, I'm just checking. I, I, I'm, I'm bound to assent to it, yes. Okay, you're bound to. Now, how do you know that they're teaching you the truth? Because of Christ's promises about the Petrine ministry. In Matthew 16? In Matthew 16 and Luke 22, 31, 32, in John... Uh, 21, 15 to 19, and other places in Scripture. Well, I know that you know the Petros thing and Petros Petros. You oh, you, you hold to that? Well, I know that is that is, that is a very outdated 
kind of anti-Catholic argument. Uh, outdated doesn't mean it's not valid. Well, I mean, Mormons no, say, yes, that's no, an old no, argument. Well, no, no real scholar accepts it anymore. Protestant scholars have wholesale rejected it pretty much. Ah, that's not what I've Let me show you why they rejected it. Because if you if you look at other places in scriptures, such as, oh, I don't know, First uh, Corinthians 9, 5, 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 12, uh, Galatians, um, oh, God, uh, Galatians... Uh, Did you just... Use the Lord's name in vain? No, I just invoked the name of the Lord. I'm praying. Okay. He helps me. Hey, we Catholics need all the help we can get remembering verses of Scripture. It doesn't come natural to us. Okay. Well, we'll complain about that. <laughs> so, uh, basically, uh, Peter's referred to in those passages as, as kephas. Sometimes it's written as cephas with a C, so it should actually be with a K. Okay? In, in the Greek, it's with a K. Kephas is a Greek transliteration of an Aramaic word, kepha, which means rock doesn't mean stone. This word for stone in Aramaic is Evna. So what we, what we find captured there, it's also in um, John uh, 1.14, I believe. Uh, what, we, what we find captured there is the original Aramaic usage that Jesus himself used when he named Peter Rock. And he didn't name him Little Stone, as the, as the modern Protestant interpretation likes to do, likes to claim in Matthew 1618 in order to undermine the Roman papacy. Now, Protestant scholars will say, well, we still deny the Roman papacy, but uh, basically the reason for the switch between Petra and Petros in Matthew 16 is just because Petra, the Greek word for rock, is feminine in Greek. So if you're going to name a man rock, you've got to change it and make it masculine, Petros. Right. And that's what any Greek speaker would do. So that, that's the real reason for the passage. Well, but, that, but that's why I believe... That I, I believe Jesus created a ministry to maintain the unity and orthodoxy of the universal church. I well, believe that. Well, first of all, not all scholars agree with you as Protestant scholars. The ones I've been studying do hold to that position, that the difference between the male, masculine and feminine deals with the nature of a boulder and a pebble kind of, a, of an idea. In 5th century B.C., Ionic Greek poetry, Petros was one. So? Used, actually, once, about three times. Used to refer to a little stone. However, the Bible isn't written in Ionic Greek. It's written in Koinic Greek. Koine. That would be like taking something from Middle English. You understand that? That's Middle English. It's like taking something of usage back then where the word girl meant a young boy or a young girl and saying that a girl today can mean a young boy. No one would say that in modern English. That's what the scholars are doing. They are illicitly taking Ionic Greek poetry and applying it to first century Koinic Greek. That's a no-no. Well, that I would have to study in order to deal with the argument sufficiently. And well, so I don't know of, all of that. I'm giving the name of a lot of Protestant scholars who would back me up on it. And I have probably could get a list of a lot of Protestant scholars who would disagree with you. So my scholar beats up your scholar kind of argument well, and gets us nowhere. Explain away the use of kepha. Well, I don't have to in that Peter is the is Petros, Petros and Petros is what the church is built on, if I remember correctly. Did some research. Well, yeah, but Jesus called him rock. He didn't call him little stone. But the church isn't built on on Peter. It's built on Jesus. It is built on... Jesus built the church on Peter. No. It's not built on a God. You're denying that the church is built on anybody but Jesus. Yeah. Okay. Jesus is the cornerstone. Ephesians chapter 2, 19 and 20. Aren't you going to agree with me that Jesus is the cornerstone? Absolutely, yes. Okay. Jesus is the true rock of the church. Peter is the vicarious rock of the church. Jesus is the true good shepherd. John 21. Okay. Peter is the vicarious shepherd.
shepherd. He's, Jesus is the foundation. It's built upon him, and all the prophets and apostles and all the, everything else that comes after it are built upon him. But Jesus is speaking in Matthew 16. Yeah. Matthew. And okay? he says... Upon this rock, I will build my church. What, I'm not saying upon myself, I will build the church. Of course he is. The rock of pure confession that Jesus is the Christ. Read the passage. I did. So I, blessed are you, singular, you singular in Greek, uh-huh. Simon Bar-Jonah. Yeah. For ple- flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my singular, father in heaven. Yeah. but only my Father in heaven. And so I say to you, singular, that you, singular, are a rock. And upon this rock I will found my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I give to you, singular, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever you bound on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. That's a total of seven singular yous in Greek. Tell you what, let's get back to that next week, because I've written an article on it. Okay. And I can deal with that, and we can talk about that. We can talk about this issue of Peter and the papacy and, and all the succession okay. stuff. Okay? I don't want to get okay. into we're, it. We're off subject. We're way off topic. And believe me, we can talk about that. And it's, another, it's worth talking about, too. Oh, yeah. Okay. You could be on for next but, week, then? But, but, but well, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely try to be. Okay, try to be. All right. Well, here's, 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 here's the bottom line, though. We, we are disagreeing about the need of an objective standard of authority. No, we, we agree we, we need an objective standard. Who is the objective standard of authority for you? Jesus. Do you talk, does he talk to you on a regular basis? Yes. In, in terms of actual, the actual voices you hear? Uh, I'm going to admit that it might be pretty... <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. Well, obviously, he speaks to all of our hearts. Obviously, yeah, yeah through the word. I believe, I believe, I believe the Lord does speak to you. Okay, yeah. I believe the Lord does speak to all sincere Christians. Yeah. Okay, but he doesn't speak in in terms of an authority. That's why he left the shepherds. Yeah, we have okay. pastors and preachers, teachers. You know. Okay, but well, the yeah. issue isn't whether or not. Yeah, but we don't just have them. They were given to us by Christ. I know the pastors and teachers exactly. Well, yeah, but those pastors and teachers appointed other pastors and teachers who appointed other pastors and teachers, as Second Timothy two two says. With laying on of hands. By the laying on of hands, yes, yeah. Sacrament of ordination. Yeah. And we have those guys with us today. But but, but who among them do you follow? I follow Jesus. <sighs> yeah, I know, but if, don't you see that it's it's very easy taking that position to make up a little Jesus for yourself in your head who isn't the real objective Jesus? Yeah. Okay. I war against that all the time with cults. Okay, well. And how do I know if they're right or wrong? I compare what they teach with Scripture. By your interpretation. Well, wait a minute. We know. Okay. You see, this is the thing. Well, first of all, this interpretation thing. I'll tell you what. Because I want to tackle that. But I'm I'm really trying. Okay, I don't mean to interrupt you. No, it's okay. Go go with the progression that you were going. But I just want to tackle the three points I wrote down down in the notes, what you said about them, and then we can get to this issue of interpretation. Yeah, yeah. Okay? I'm sorry. All right. Now, because believe me, you you threw out a lot of lures for me to to snag into and and be uh, taken along off topic. Now, you gave me three reasons, and then you kind of preambled it with this uh, idea of the interpretation as the issue of Acts 8.31. It, and, and this is the problem I'm having here with when you go to Philip. He says, how can I know unless someone tells him? Well, he wasn't even a believer at the time. And he said, how can I know unless someone tells him? Well, we're supposed to, as Christians, tell him. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. He was a believer. He was a Jew. He wasn't a believer in the Christ. Not in the Christ, but he was reading Isaiah. Yeah, Were you, so. you saying that Jews couldn't understand Isaiah? Then why was Jesus hollering at the Pharisees for not uh, reading the Scriptures correctly? Because they didn't understand it. Well, some of them understood it because some, some of them did. disciples. Some did and some don't. But the Bible says the natural man cannot understand the things of God. And Jesus says in Luke twenty-four forty-five, he opens a mind to understand Scripture. So all Christians who read Scripture understand it? No. 
then you need a, you need an authoritative interpreter. Nope, not that. Nope, not yet. <laughs> okay. Nope. Go ahead. Okay. Now, but, but Sola Scriptura was a Jew. Sola Scriptura. Yep. You say it's not the Bible. Uh-huh. Okay. Not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. Now, I believe. Let's go from the, the least to the most to the best. I think. I hope here in this progression of an argument, I'm going to try and present. Okay. I believe that the Bible is the Word of God, yep. and that whatever it addresses is authoritative and true, and that we should not exceed whatever is written in the Bible. Now, do you agree with I that? I agree with everything except that last sentence. You, do we, what, you don't agree that we, should, we shouldn't, what, we should not exceed what's written? We should, in a sense of substance, no, we should not, ex- in, sense, in a sense of substance, we obviously have to agree with everything that's in the Bible and not exceed it that way. In the sense of certain things, like, oh, I don't know, the definition of the Trinity, that's not in the Bible, and we have to make it very clear what we believe about that. Well, here's a verse I think is interesting, 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written, in order that none of you might become arrogant in behalf of one another against another. So we are proclaimed or told in Scripture not to exceed what is written. Uh-huh. Can, I, can you get, tell me what chapter that is again? First Corinthians 4, 6. It certainly sounds like the Bible teaching that we should only use what's written and not exceed what's written. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. But you know what? If you go back a few verses, uh, you, can re- you can find out what Paul is really saying. Let's do that. Let, um, verse 1. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it's a very small thing that well, I should be examined well, by you. Actually, mind if I interrupt you? Go ahead. It just took me a while to find it. Oh, sorry. Uh, okay. Uh, chapter 3, verse 19. This is, you got to remember here now that the chapter divisions that we have in the Scripture today not did not exist that. in the early church. They That's were right. created by Cardinal Stephen Langton, Catholic Archbishop of Canterbury in the early 1200s. Okay. He mostly did a good job. He did a fine job. Yeah. Now, so all this is part of one passage. Now, in chapter 3, starting in verse 19, it says, For the wisdom of the world is foolishness in the eyes of God, for it is written. He catches the wise in their own ruses, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. So let no one, uh, no one boast about human beings. This is what he means by, you may not go, go beyond what is written in the following chapter. He's referring to that quote. There is nothing in this passage that says you have to go by Scripture alone, nor would it make any sense to say that, because... Most of the New Testament wasn't written yet. Well, hold and, on a sec here. You say, yeah. it says here, for it is written, he was the one who catches the wise and the craftiness, and, and again, the Lord knows reasonings of the wise that they are useless. So let, then let no one boast in men. So, in other words, don't go with what men are saying, go with what the scriptures say. Well, the, this particular scriptures, yes. So only those scriptures? Don't go beyond what those scriptures teach? Well, that's, what he, that's all I'm saying, Matthew, is that's, that's what Paul is referring to in that passage. Okay. Then he's he not goes, referring to all scriptures exclusively. He's referring to. So we should exceed. Oh, we should exceed what's written by God. Well, in a substantive way, no. But in a in a matter of the apostolic deposit of faith, we have to because Paul is the same same Paul says so. Second Thessalonians two fifteen. Well, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions you were taught, whether by an oral statement or by a letter from us. Have you looked at the let's look at the context of that? Yeah. Okay. And what it says there is, uh, I did some analysis on it. It's dealing with the doctrine of eschatology. Yes, it is. Okay, and that's what he's saying. Beginning in verse one, Paul speaks about the coming of the Lord Jesus. That the Thessalonians not be shaken in composure regarding the day of the Lord. He goes on to say in verse three that there must first be an apostasy with the coming of the lawless one, 
that the Antichrist uh, will be revealed, false signs, verse 9, and God will send a deluding influence, you know, they believe a lie, verse 11 through 12. Yes. In verse 13, it says that they should give thanks because God has chosen them for salvation and called them to, uh, according to the gospel. Then he says, brethren, stand firm and hold the traditions which you've, which you've been taught. Yeah, he, doesn't just, he doesn't mean just these traditions. But that's what he says. Hold on a sec here. Oh, to, oh. Wait, 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 wait. What letter did he give to those Thessalonians about eschatology before, first, before this was written? I don't know. Okay. Well, he, he, obviously he's referring to 1 Thessalonians. Okay. 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 Now, the, the, the idea, though, is that he also imparted other things to them that weren't referred to in the letter. But he doesn't refer to those things. The tradition he's talking about there is a tradition of... But he doesn't say the tradition. He no. says the traditions you were taught. Well, I'll give you another one. Well, hold on a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Yeah. He says right here, the whole context is dealing with the issue of eschatology, the, the return of Christ. Christ. Yeah, that's what he's saying. He says, so hold, hold, hold on the traditions we're teaching you regarding the return of Christ. Well, that's not what he says, though. That is. No, that's no, no, no. What, he, what, he, what he's referring to is the whole body of tradition. Oh, wait a minute. If that's I go to 1 Corinthians 4, 6, which says you're not to see what's written, you go back and then you say, you know, it's really referring to these little issues of Scripture. But if I do this, I go back and say he's referring specifically, and he is. No, no, you're right. Oh, you say he's do that. He is referring to specifically about that, but then he, he sums the whole thing up by saying stand firm and hold test the traditions you would taught. Yeah, in regards to the topic at hand, which was the eschatology. Principally, but the, but also the, the principle is laid that, he, that he's referring to whatever he imparted to the Thessalonians, which he, which he gave to them orally. And he gave to them what was passed down, and he inscripturated it in 1 Thessalonians 4, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, which, he also addre- which is also addressed in Second uh, Peter 3. It's a really interesting topic, but at any rate, that's another topic. Well, here's here in the same. But he's doing Thessalonians. Well, second, keeping with Second Thessalonians. Okay. In the same letter, in chapter three, he says, "We instruct you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to shun any brother who conducts himself in a disorderly way and not according to the tradition they received from us." Mm-hmm. Is Paul? That not he's not referring to eschatology there. No, he's not. Paul then saying, "What's he referring to?" He's referring to church discipline. He's referring to the, the way that he, that the oral traditions that he gave for conducting discipline in the church. Oh, no, no. Beginning in verse 1, Paul asked for prayers so that the word of God may be spread. Verse yeah. 2, that they be delivered from evil. Verse 3 says that the Lord will protect them. From, from, uh, protect them. Verse 4 says that they have confidence in the Lord. In the, in the Lord, excuse me. Verse 5 is a request that the Lord direct them. Verse yeah. 6 says... Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received. An unruly life. Then he goes on to clarify what he was saying to the Thessalonians because he talks about the example of work and not eating, verse 7 through 9. Verse 10 he says, For even there are, we are with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone will not work, let him not eat. So yeah. the whole context of doing this, tradition right. thing is in the issue of not being a lazy bum. Right, agreed. Not the whole tradition of sacred and the magisterium and sacred tradition. That's not what he's talking about. Well, yeah, but, but that's part of the tradition. That's oh. part of what he, he calls it a tradition. I wish you were right here so I could just give you a stern look. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll make a note of that. Matt giving me stern, stern look. Stern look. Okay. Well, okay. Here's, here's the point. The point is is that is, Paul uses the word tradition, paradoxus, both, both here and in, and in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. He's referring to two different things, but he's still using tradition. That's what's being referred to. The point is, is that there was no written tradition about this. There was an oral tradition. 
and that oral tradition the church was bound to in terms of eschatology. But the tradition that he's talking about there specifically, one is of eschatology and one is of not being a lazy bum, to paraphrase it quite a bit. This what is what he's, he's talking, talking about. about. is exactly what he refers to in Philippians 1.27. Philippians 1.27. Yeah, that you were standing firm in one spirit with one mind struggling. Oh, I'm sorry, wrong one. Ah, uh, wrong one. <laughs> that happens. I do it too. Yeah, wait a minute. Let me... Standing let me, firm. Wait, First Corinthians 11.2? Yeah, well, you know, Catholics are hopeless, what can I tell you? Without Jesus. Uh, where would I have that? Is um, it? Let me see if I can help you out here. Maybe that's it. Uh... Uh, I don't know. Oh, you know what? Yeah, I'm looking no, wait, no, it's First Corinthians eleven two. Now praise you because you remember me and everything and hold firmly to the, tra- to the traditions. Is that right. one? Well, that's one of them. But the one I, I meant to talk about was Philippians four nine. Okay, sorry. Keep on doing what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Yeah. Then the God of peace will be with you. Yeah. Okay. He says something very similar to Timothy in Second Timothy one fourteen. Yeah, but how does that mean that, sc- that tradition is but inspired? Isn't that going beyond scripture? That wouldn't you say that I'm, I'm addressing your your first argument from First Corinthians? Wouldn't you call following the examples of Paul going beyond Scripture? No, because he did not exceed Scripture. Not substantively. No, he didn't. You're right. But in terms of how he conducted the Eucharist, the, the Lord's Supper. Oh, I don't agree with that. How in terms of how he <laughs> how the early Christians were supposed to worship, in terms of certain more esoteric beliefs that they had, such as the understanding of the Trinity. All these things were there. They were all committed by the apostles. Paul was in Corinth. No, no, I'm not buying all that. I'm not buying all that. I'm sorry. That, that's no. a whole other bag of worms we could get into and dive into. So Paul more. never yeah. taught them about the Trinity. That just didn't exist in the early church. No, I believe it did. I believe it so did. So do I. Scriptures clearly teach it, and then he revealed the doctrine of the Trinity. But in terms of the clear definition of the Trinity, which was, which was affirmed by the Council of Nicaea, right. did the apostles hold to that belief? I would say... Well, how do I know? See, I can't read their minds to be able to say they did or didn't. So that's not really a fair question. But if they didn't, it wouldn't be part of the apostolic revelation, therefore we... Whoa, 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 whoa. We derive things from Scripture. We look at Scripture and we learn things about Scripture and we see things in Scripture. And just because someone, which scares me, but someone might lately come across something and say, hey, look at this, and then the church hadn't really noticed it before and they see it and they learn from it, it doesn't mean it's invalid. Yeah, but I think we have a very different concept of what the apostles imparted to the city churches that they founded. I believe that they imparted a comprehensive, full appreciation of the faith. Sometimes it wasn't always articulated. Well, that's a belief. Sometimes, well, yeah, but it's validly. That's what the that's what the early Christians believed. My belief is certainly valid that the Bible is the only rule of authority. But where do you get that belief from? From the Bible. Don't exceed what's written. <laughs> well, that's not what that. That, that, that verse refers to Oh, that. but that's what you say it doesn't mean. Well, now you're applying a tit-for-tat argument. But, I mean, <laughs> no, I'm not. How do, you know, how do you know that your interpretation is right and my interpretation is wrong? Well, I'm going to do the best I can by looking at the rules of interpretation, which we should do in another show. Well, what binds me to your interpretation, then? None, because you're bound to the Pope. <laughs> but you think I Aren't should you? be. Aren't you? I'm under his authority. There you go. You're bound to believe what the Pope tells you to believe about it. You just say Jesus. That's very easy to say. I'm under Jesus' authority. I am. Because Jesus is my my ultimate authority. I don't have any other vicar on earth. I don't mean to be rude, but, you know, I'm not trying to be be mean here. So then Christ didn't didn't appoint a vicarious shepherd for you? That's a shame. No, no, no. No, we have pastors. We have pastors. We have pastors. Can we get back on, on point number two? Pastorello in Italian means shepherd. Okay. That's where that word. That's what that word means. Yeah, I know. Do you have? Do you have? Do you have a? Do you have a? Do you have a shepherd? Yeah, I have a pastor. Are you bound to him? Yes and no. Are, are you under his authority? Yes and no. 
Okay, well, in one sense, aren't you a founder as authority? If he contradicts the scripture, I'm not bound under his authority. Oh, so his interpretation and your interpretation are equal, then. Therefore, his authority and your authority are equal. Scripture. Therefore, you don't really have a shepherd. We, we agree about 99.9% of the scriptures. I'm not going to believe him just because, look, just because he's a pastor, the pastor, his name is Matt, incidentally, and if he's my pastor and he says something, I'm going to believe whatever he says, I might as well start drinking Kool-Aid. Well, no, now, see, now you're putting a, a spit on it whereby it's, it's evil and a cult. No, no, Check it what the Pope says well, against the well, scriptures. Would, would the first Christians say that to the apostles? No, because they're the apostles. Yeah. But the Pope is not and an the apostle. Apostol- the apostles had Episcopal authority. The Pope and is not an apostle. And authority was passed down. The pa- oh, come on. You know. Another <laughs> student looked up it. You know that the, a lot of popes were pretty stinking evil. Yeah. Okay? Now, well, passed down, that authority was lost. What's that? That authority was lost at the time. No, no, no. See, this, that, that, that is an early heresy called Donatism that you're subscribing no, to. No, no, no. No, oh, I, mean, I believe Donatism was when the Holy Catholic Church came Well, wait, it's alien to the Scriptures. Let me show you where. What is Donatism alien to the Scriptures? Donatism yeah. was a heresy. Yeah. You know, what it, you know what it taught? Yeah, that those who got rid of the documents and threw them away when they were under persecution could come back into the Church and be fully, re- um, whatever. No, no, no. Oh, no, that was the opposite of Donatism. <laughs> The Donatists thought that the people who got rid of all the possessions of the church wasn't just the, the scriptures, or basically right. who, the, the people who sacrificed incense to the emperor. Right. And should they be allowed to back in fellowship? Right. Yeah, the Catholics thought that they should come back. Right, and I agree. Forgiven. I agree that they the, should be. The Donatists thought that they couldn't be. Right. But the Donatists taught something else. They taught that a priest or a bishop, if he committed apostasy or any other sin, he, could, he, he has lost all ability to administer the sacraments or to preach. Forever. Okay? Well, I wouldn't agree with that. Well, yeah, but, but, here's, but you're saying that sin causes you to lose authority. I, de- I, I deny that, and so does the Scripture. Well, the, you know, we could talk about the Pope some other time when we get to the issue of well, what they were teaching, how they contradicted each other, and how incredibly immoral they were, because if they're that immoral, they're not saved to some degree. They don't have any authority because they're not Christian to begin with, and they don't have this, the seat oh. of Peter's authority simply by sitting in a seat in a chair, even if they're unregenerate, because I believe many of the Popes are unregenerate. Okay, fine, maybe they were, but it doesn't change the fact that they're not popes. If they were popes, the pope unregenerate, po- appointed by the Roman Catholic Church. I'm sorry? They were, they were I'm sure, they were unregenerate. i got a quote Well, I, I, we, we, we mean different things by unregenerate. Oh, no. Okay. Unsaved, well, not having the Spirit of God. Where's my quotes here? Hold on a second. Okay. I'm going to find it. Oh, we still haven't got the second point in my notes here. I'm trying to get to Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you're like me. You want to go for it. But if, you know. if you, while you're looking up stuff, if you look, if you look at uh, John 11, 49 to 50. Hold on, I've got my whole stuff here. Okay. There's so many things. I have so many papers here. Uh, I did some research today. Oh, well, that's good. You know, I was, I was, I was doing stuff, and I can't find it. Darn it. It's where, um, eh, it's one of the, I got it off of uh, off of the Catholic website today. Uh, I hope it was a good one. Yeah, it was a Catholic one. Well, I hope it was really Catholic. No, it was. It was the Catholic, whatever. I don't have it here. Okay. Okay, can't find it. So, I, Dang it. Darn, 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 darn. Anyway, it was a quote from there about one of the popes being basically into debauchery and uh, yep. uh, just all kinds of, of crud. And I mean, you can't tell me the guy was a Christian. I mean, that kind of stuff. It was just pretty bad. Well, here's the thing. Even if a pope is a notorious sinner, here's what Catholics believe. We believe that the pope is infallible in terms of his teaching authority, meaning that the Holy Spirit will not allow him to teach an error. See, that's an assumption. But, well, no, it's a belief. I mean, you can deny it, but we believe it. Yeah, well, you believe, believe it. Well, we don't right. believe. Well, what we don't believe, we don't believe that the, that a pope is impeccable. 
meaning that he can't commit a sin or make a make a personal error. What if a yeah. pope was out raping and pillaging and murdering? I mean, hypothetically. Oh, I don't know. Somebody who held, holds Christianity together in universal unity and orthodoxy the first thousand something years of Christianity and really saves us from some major heresies like Arianism and Monophysism and Nestorianism. The, the church did that. Oh, no, the Pope actually did. The church did that. <laughs> go back and look at the history. No, the church did that. Okay. The church did that. Well, okay, go let's back go, and look let's at go, the history. Let's go to point two. Okay, uh-huh. what? You said uh, soul scripture does not produce consistent results over time. That's irrelevant to the issue of whether or not it is sufficient in itself. Sure it is. No, it's not. Well, but it is. Because no, it's not. If, well, I'll give you an example. Can we have the Constitution of the United States without the Supreme Court to interpret it? Yes. And the Constitution of the United States, all by itself, just by average Americans reading it, will give us sufficient government and and everything will be fine and we well, can help it, together as a nation? It exists whether or not the Supreme Court exists. And I, it is sufficient in itself whether or not the Supreme Court exists. Okay. But the Supreme Court interprets it, and it often interprets it wrong. Uh-huh. But that's, that's a secular example. But the point is, is that we have, we have a Supreme Court for that reason. But how do we know that they've interpreted it wrong? I mean, for example, you know, would vehemently agree that there's no right to kill unborn children yeah. found in right to privacy. Right. So we know that they've interpreted it wrong. But we if do. they are the supreme authority, and if you were going to draw the analogy with the papacy being the, the Mediterranean being the supreme authority, you can't, you cannot disregard them, but you can disregard the Supreme Court. Well, but there's a difference. We have a promise from Christ about the Holy Spirit when it comes to the leaders of the church. We don't have a promise uh, for, the, for the Supreme Court. Well, he does That's say that difference. his government's set up by him, Romans 13. I'm sorry? Well, the government is set up by God, but that's another topic. Well, the whole point is that it does not produce... To say it doesn't produce consistent results is an issue of interpretation, not an issue of sufficiency. Yeah, but authoritative interpretation. No, well, that's another topic. Is well, the Bible I don't think a... it is. I think it's the same thing. And I really don't no, know how it, how it is a different topic. Why don't you explain that to me? If, if the Bible is in itself inerrant and inspired, then yeah. by its nature, it's authoritative. Absolutely. Okay, good. Amen. Okay, by nature. Now, the problem that we're going to have is an interpretation of it. Now, if you and I... If you and I disagree on interpretation on, say, transubstantiation, okay, it doesn't mean that the Bible's insufficient, or it doesn't lessen its authority in any way, shape, or form. It's it means, well, again, I, again, we've got to be careful with, with mixing apples and oranges here. Its objective no. authority, obviously, is inherent. We, we both believe that the Bible is an objective source of authority insofar that it is, it is, infall- it is inerrant content. We yeah. both believe that. But we have, right? it's different than the issue of interpretation. Yeah, but how do you get to that content? To we'll do it, we'll, let's do it next week. Rule of faith. Wait, wait, wait. Matthew, the minute you introduce the term soul, sola, alone, yeah. into this, you're ignoring the fact that you're part of the mix. Yeah. What's wrong with that? Well, Can't you're not infallible. From interpretation? And I'm not infallible. That's true. And the <laughs> Roman Catholic Church certainly is not infallible. Well, we would disagree. We would say that with St. Paul, that the church is the pillar and foundation of truth, 1 Timothy 3.15. Except that's not what it's talking about, the Roman What's Catholic Church, which teaches indulgences and purgatory and limbo. Well, how do you know? Because it doesn't agree but, with Scripture. Well, uh, I say it does agree with Scripture. I say it doesn't. Right. So who, who gets to decide? What authority gets to decide? Then let's go to the Word of God and decide. No, 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 no. See, because once again, I can go to the Word of God, too, and throw my interpretations at you. Let's do it. But, yeah, I know, but we're right back to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. No, we're not. We're back to Romans 14. What's Romans 14? It's in the Bible, in the book, in the New Testament. You know what that is. 
Yeah. That was a joke. What, what, See, what, what point are you making from Romans 14? I know. I was making a joke on you. What's Romans 14? <sighs> it's in the Bible. Okay. Now, okay. accept the one. I, I was joking on you there. All right. Okay. Now, accept the one who's weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he made all things. Now, now think about this. I'm going to read this. If the papacy and the magisterium and the Roman Catholic Church are supposed to be the one that finally interprets what the Word of God means, then why does Paul say it's okay to have differences of opinions? By looking at the Word. Now, let's see what he says. It says here in verse 2, One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. I think I'm a little dyslexic here. Ah. Let not him who eats regard with contempt he who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Now, a couple more verses here. Who are you to judge a servant of another to his own mastery stands or falls? Okay, verse 5. One man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, be fully convinced in his own mind. This is the command of Scripture that I'm to look at the Word of God and be convinced in my own mind. I don't, but, see, him, I don't see him studying the Word of God there, the scriptural Word of God. I don't see he, any reference to Scripture there. Sure he does. No, what he's referring to, again, is the practice of the kosher laws and the practice of whether... Now, that, yeah, come out of Scripture. Well, but it's, but it's not. Yes, it is. Well, let me ask you this. Can you eat rare meat? Yes. Are you allowed to? Yeah. Okay, well, doesn't that violate, for, uh, doesn't violate Acts 15 for you? No. Because it says in Acts 15 that the apostles, and it says it's the decision of the Holy Spirit in verse 28, that, that Gentile Christians should not eat any meat with blood in it. Okay. So if you or I enjoy a rare steak, are we sinning well, against the Word of God? Well, you know, see, that's like a, that's like a, a trick, you see, and I like that, no, too. No, it's not a trick. It's, it's a I matter like of it. I, I trick sorry. people. I'm I'm sorry? I like it because I trick people like that. But you see, I do. It's fun. Well, I don't mean to trick you. I'm asking an honest question. Really. But no, well, what, see, here's the thing. What is rare? Rare means it has a little blood in it. Could you have a molecule of blood in it? Could you have a little cell of blood? Well, you a, a, cell Jew, of blood? a Jew couldn't eat with a little cell of blood or a little... Well, then they better not. They better not, but they derived this, hopefully, out of the idea of Scripture, and it was their tradition that screwed them up. But the Bible says well, here in Romans 5, no, no, wait, wait, wait. Romans Scripture 14, tells the Jew that he can't eat meat with blood in it. I know it does. It flat, flat out does. Right. And it tells them a lot of other things that they messed up on. They yeah. reinterpreted incorrectly. Okay, but now Acts 15 is clearly telling the Gentiles of Antioch and Cilicia that they cannot eat meat with blood in it, that they abstain from doing that. Okay. okay. All right. Well, I'm going to take it out. I'm not, not familiar with that. Sorry. I hate to admit it, but I'm not. Oh, okay. Well, basically what was happening was this. The, 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 the Jews wanted the Gentiles to be circumcised. And everybody yeah, I know that. Part of right. It, right. What, 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 the, what the authorities at Jerusalem did was in order to keep peace between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians so they could eat meals together, which was very important because that's when they celebrated the Lord's Supper, right. okay, was to bind the Gentile Christians under the Noachide, what were called in Judaism the Noachide Laws. Right, which, were, which Yeah, which is what you had as, if, you were, if you were a Gentile believer in the God of Israel and wanted to hang around at the synagogue, you had to bond yourself to these bare essentials, right. even though you weren't a full Jew. Right. Okay? Got, gotcha. I'm with so, so far. the purpose of that, of that law, the purpose of that decree of the apostles and presbyters at Jerusalem, was to bind the Gentile Christians to these bare essentials so that they wouldn't alienate those Jewish Christians that were trying to keep the law. That's all they were doing. Okay? Okay. So the point is, is that no Christian that I know of, and I'm sure there's some sects out there that feel that way, but uh, no Christian that I know of or I've ever met is feels bound by that decree of the apostles, even though it's in Scripture. The authority of the church loosened it, because the, the, the church has the power to bind and loosen. Jesus says so. And the reason that we've loosened that discipline was because when 
Judaism and Christianity went their separate ways, and nobody in the church was celebrating uh, or, or observing the, the Jewish laws anymore, we let it go. It wasn't, it wasn't imposed upon us. Okay? Now, what Paul is addressing there in Romans is that very issue, because some, some Christians had family members who were still pagans. They ate meat with blood in it. What, I can't go to Aunt Betty's house for, for Sunday dinner? What, you know, what are you saying? Right. Yeah. And Paul is basically putting a nuance on that teaching and basically saying, look, you're not committing a sin if you do it. It's not a matter of that. And this is how that law, which, which bound Christians in the first century and for the first couple of centuries of the church, whenever they ate with Jewish Christians, that law was not all exclusive in terms of, um, in terms of the, the, the other things, in terms of you know, regular meetings with your... Okay, so I'm failing to see what the issue here is. I mean, I'm familiar with all, all of that. It's just, just a specific issue of strangled from, uh, and from blood. Okay. That's the one I specifically haven't studied. Okay. Okay, so that's all I meant by what do you mean. Okay, I'm, so, I'm sorry. That's I all right. Thought, I just thought it would be helpful if we illustrated that for other people. Yeah, well, there you go. I can't argue with that one. Yeah. Okay. Now, I forgot where we were. We were on a good roll. Okay, we're, well, we're still talking about the issue of authority. Okay, let's, well... Okay, what you're focusing on is the fact that Scripture is an objective source of divine truth. Amen. We both agree with that, brother. I agree with you. But okay. the, the problem is our interpretation of it, which we can talk about next week. But it's the problem of our authoritative... Of, of someone's authoritative interpretation. But the Bible but, gives us the right to be able, in Romans 14, to be able to interpret things and have disagreements. Not, to the, not in terms of dividing the unity of the church, it doesn't. Well, See, you know, I totally agree with you. That's there are essentials and non-essentials of the Christian faith, and yeah. he was talking about non-essentials, and we are allowed to have disagreements in the non-essentials. And the essentials of the Christian faith, I've discovered, are actually articulated in Scripture. Uh, not really. Yes, not always. Yeah. Well, well if, somebody, if somebody says that they don't believe that uh, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Heretic. That's a heretic. I agree with you. That's an that's an historian or a monophysite heretic. Right. Okay. Or are you taking? Well, no, you taking. Well, anyway. yeah. it's going to be very hard to, to analyze that in in scripture in terms of the specific relationship. What if he says, "I believe that Jesus is, I don't know, uh, mostly God and mostly man." Well, he's obviously an error and probably isn't regenerate. But, well, yeah, but maybe, maybe not. We can't we can't deny it from scripture. Can't deny what from scripture? Well, scripture itself doesn't ever tell us specifically. How the hypothetic union of Jesus Christ is. It doesn't tell it, it, right. it, doesn't tell it how, it just says it is. Yeah. Right. But we have to believe that Jesus Christ is one divine person who existed from all, all right. eternity with two natures, a divine nature that he, that, he, that he possessed from the beginning of time, all eternity, right. and a human nature which he acquired in space and Correct. time from a human mother. Correct. That's we, called we the hypostatic union. Yes, and we have to believe that. Okay? Now, as a Catholic, I am bound by the Council of Ephesus and the Council of Chalcedon to dogmatically believe that, because I believe that those councils infallibly taught that refinement of the apostolic faith, that this is what the early church has always believed. I would agree that they properly defined it and refined it and yeah, I have checked the scriptures and that counsel is correct yeah but what <laughs> that's, but you're, you're making yourself the final interpreter there you're Wait making a minute. yourself Paul, the final arbiter didn't Luke say in Acts 17.11 he says that the Bereans checked to see what the apostles they received it with gladness and they were checking to see what what even the apostles said was consistent with scripture am I to do no less well once again you just fought at me for Quoting the Ethiopian in Acts 8, but the Bereans in Acts 17 are Jews, 
But they, they were checking what, what the Christian teaching was against Scripture, and Paul... Well, they were checking the Old Testament to see exactly. if, if what Jesus was saying about the Messiah was so. And they were checking yeah. even what the authority of the apostolic succession was according to Scripture. No, because once they... Berea is, as we mentioned last time, Berea is a suburb of Thessalonica. Once, once those Berean Jews accepted Christ, were baptized, and entered the church, they were under Paul's authority. And they were bound by his oral teaching as well as by his, uh, well, as well as by what he wrote them in letters. I would basically agree with that because of his nature of being an apostle. Yeah, but also Paul had an understanding of a hypostatic union. Paul had an understanding sure. of, of this comprehensive understanding is what, for the most part, Catholics mean when we speak of uh, sacred oral tradition. Okay, we, you know what? We only got about three minutes, Dave, yeah. and, and this is good. This is good. I disagree with you on some stuff. I agree with you on some other stuff. But can I get? And it's not like I can't answer or talk about this, but your third point, I, I wrote it down. I want to talk about last. This, we only have a couple of minutes. We really can't get into it too far, though. Okay? Uh-huh. But you said so, sola scriptura is a miserable failure, and you cite it because of differences of interpretation. This is a reflection of a logical error earlier made in that the sola scriptura doctrine, because people misapply what the scripture says, doesn't mean that the Bible is not sufficient in itself to be authority authoritative. What, what you, I believe you're doing, I believe it's an error on your part. Now, I'm not trying to be mean or rude, but you, know, you think I have errors too. That's fine. But I think you're mixing categories. I think you think that, well, I think, uh, back up here, making a logical mistake in that you, you recognize the authority of Scripture, but then you say that the only way to uh, know that sola scriptura is true is if everybody agrees with what the Bible says. But that's not the case. It's the result of sola scriptura. No, it isn't. Let me, let me give no, you no, no. It's the na- no. It's the nature of us as Christians and as sinners. As Romans 14 says, we are allowed to have differences of opinion. If sola scriptura meant... But not not but, in terms of the essentials, we're not. But, Protestants I, I agree. agree in terms of the essentials. No, we don't disagree in the, pro- in the essentials. All Protestants agree on the nature of baptism, the nature of salvation. Not, nature of baptism is not an essential of the Christian faith. You don't have to be not baptized, baptized to be saved. That, Matthew. Well, the Bible doesn't teach you have to be baptized to be saved. We're justified by faith. Well, most Protestants believe otherwise. No, they don't. Oh, you, uh, hold on. Okay, most Protestants, if you if you look at the worldwide Protestant community, believe that baptism is necessary for salvation. The Bible here's, says, here's, here's what we're getting justified at. by faith, Romans 5. Well, we, we, yeah, and he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Romans 6, I mean, Mark 16, 16, which you know is not found in the oldest, some of the oldest manuscripts, okay. and has 17 non-marking words used in a non-marking sense, and it also says in verse 12 that Jesus appeared in a different form, which we know he did not. Well, First Peter 3, this prefigures baptism which saves you now. And T2pon, which is, it says, in like manner, baptism now saves you, and then he clarifies not the removal of dirt from the flesh, and the word T2pon in the Greek there, which means corresponding to that, corresponding to what? To what is before. If you look in before the few verses, I'm going so quickly because we're almost out of time, <laughs> is because... Well, referring to the ark and the flood, and what saved Noah and his family was not the flood, but the ark they entered by faith, and cor- by faith, and corresponding to that, baptism saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. Well, we don't, we don't think that you're saved by the removal of dirt from the flesh either. We think you're, you're saved by the sacrament of baptism, which must accompany faith for uh, a, an adult believer, for somebody who's rational and understands what okay. they're doing. we got one minute. But all, all that aside... I'll leave you with this. I urge you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same purpose. 
Sola Scriptura cannot give you that. It is not sufficient for that. It cannot produce that. You need an authoritative interpreter on top of it. Well, this is what I'm referring to. Okay, and Romans 14 says, One man regards one day above another, another one regards every day alike, that each man be fully convinced in his own mind. So we have got the right to be able to go to the Word and look at it. Unlike what Roman Catholic Church says, you don't. Okay, Romans... Is ne- next week? Well, I'll come next week. I'll try to make my, my best to make it. Okay. And I will say Romans is referring to the rites, the way, R-I-T-E, the way you worship. Uh, not referring, not referring well, to doctrine. We can talk about it. Okay. Um, and I do appreciate you. I'm liking this little extra level of tension here. It's a lot more fun, okay? <laughs> and um, if you can't make it next week, I'll know it's because you're a busy guy, and we'll just reschedule. Okay, sir. You, you want to keep going like this? Yeah. Okay. I, I'm enjoying this. What do you want to talk about next week? Interpretation? Uh, Authority? Well, I think we can still start with Sola Scriptura, see where it leads us, if you want to. Okay. That's, interpretation's part of that. Okay, let's do that. Okay. Hey, just seriously, sincerely, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thank you, Matthew. Okay, I appreciate okay. it. All right. Okay.